Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is the Starship Sofa, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to Oral Delight, show 162. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. It's a bloody cold, wet, windy day here, so I hope it's a little bit nicer where you are. Before I tell you what's coming in today's show, I just want to give like a little bit of announcement just to let you know what's happening. And two things, really. The first one, as you know, I put up a story last week, Slice of Life, and it didn't have copyright. You know, I wasn't clear to play it just then. So a lot of years will know I took it down and put it back up with, without that story in our last week's show. And, you know, I was putting together that show and I just got that, you know, all kind of put together. And I got the, it was the last, honestly, the last minute I got Larry's file and put it in there. And the the next email I get off Larry, and before we go anywhere, right, the guys, well, hopefully the guy's all right. I get another email off Larry saying, look at this picture, you know, look what you've done to us with all this kind of rushing around. And he had... He's being rushed into intensive care, and the horrible thing is he's got clots around his lungs, and to be quite honest, it just knocked me for six, and I've been feeling horrible all week, do you know what I mean? It's just like, knowing that like your mate's in hospital, and oh, but... You know, I've, I've I've actually got an interview straight now, you know, to, so you can have a listen to Larry, and then Larry's give a little afterword at the end, you know, a few more days in, into his kind of state. I think even now, you know, he's still in hospital, and the actual, the doctor said he's he's been as close to death as he's seen in the last six months, you know, for a patient, so it's been one hell of a scary time for Larry, and like I say, everyone, you know, we've all listened to Larry speaking there, and it was a lovely, and, it, but it's, you know, hours after he recorded that, he was rushed into hospital, you know, all the kind of the, the nitty gritty tests and everything like that. So come on the forums and there's some pictures. Oh, there's a picture there of Larry in the intensive care unit and everyone's kind of wishing him well. So if you want to wish him well, 
pop over the forums. He's he's got his, he's got his, you know technology there. Like I say, I can record and I can speak to anyone you know around the world. So why not you know when your mates in hospital phone him up and record the the interview? So that's what I've done. So that's what's coming up. So like I say, it is pretty serious for Larry. You know what I mean? But let's just hope he gets through it, because. You know what I mean? He's an amazing guy, and it would just floor me this if anything serious happened to Larry. You know this is serious, so Larry, get yourself sorted out. I'll give you a little what's coming on the day show. So we have the interview with Larry just to find out how he is. You know, if is he doing all right? Then we've got short fiction. We've got a little bit of like flash fiction from Brenda Cooper, the the lover of mechanical minds. Then we have it's Starship Sova interrogations. We have none other than Robert Silverberg. Then we've got an interview with Gord Seller. Gord has some the main fiction today, and it's been put together. And I got a little interview with Gord before we kind of kick off with the main fiction. Then we have the main fiction, and it's narrated by a host of casts, a host of stars. JJ Campanella's in there, Gord himself's in there. So do look out for that. Then we have a little promo by 19 Nocturne Boulevard. Then there's a few little words again from Larry, you, just to, you know... A few days down the line since I interviewed him. So that is Starship Sova's Oral Delights, show 162. Let's get straight in with the interview with Larry. Larry, you silly old buggy. Tony? Hey, Tony. Hey, can you hear us, sir? I can hear you fine. How are you? Um, <laughs> never mind I, me. I just, how are you? How are I, you? Well, I'm still in the hospital. Uh, I just, I'm just actually getting up. It's seven thirty in the morning here, and the rear end of my thing is opening up my my gown. So I'm ex- exposing my limitations to the world. Um, other than that, don't know when I'll be getting out. Uh, can you hear me? I can. Yes, I'm just actually I'm. Do you mind if I record this, Larry? Or do you no, not to... at all, not at all. Honestly, I, when I got your email, you know, it just... I thought, to be quite honest, two things, Larry. I thought you were joking at first, you know what I mean? But then the pic- <laughs> the picture was there straight away. Thank you. Do you know what I mean? And it just knocked me for six, to be quite... Especially because I'd just been putting up the, you know, the other... The, the show with you talking. And I think yeah. it was a matter of hours. Yeah, you know, yeah. I did the recording. I sent it off to you Tuesday. I was having difficulty uh, when I recorded it. Uh, I don't know if you could tell from the recording, but uh, it seemed like uh, on Tuesday. Let's see. I got back from the. Uh, I got back from the convention on Monday, on Saturday, uh, Sunday evening. Uh, I was fine. Monday, I was okay. Tuesday, about noon. I started to feel difficulty breathing. I had uh, a hard time just walking about 25 paces. I'd have to stop and hold myself. And it, I took a walk at lunchtime. I, I walked about a mile, and it was difficult. Uh, I came home. I had to run to catch the uh, the subway uh, coming home. And I, 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 I thought I was going to die. I hit the. I got into the subway into the car, and I really, I thought, people were saying, are you all right? You all right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm all right. I'll be fine. And uh, it felt like I had climbed a mountain, run a marathon, uh, done all that stuff. And then I got home, and I was 
okay, as soon as I sat down and rested for a while, within 10 minutes, I was fine. And I did the recording, and uh, anyway, I, I went to bed that night, and got next morning I got up, and I uh, went to work, and just walking down the stairs and across the street to the bus stop was agony. And then at work, I was every time I had to get up from my desk to go down to the commissioner's office or go down to the mayor's office, I'd, I'd be like having to grab myself and hang on. Um, again, just walking about 25 paces felt like I was climbing a mountain. And um, finally, I, I got off work at four and I was coming home and I could barely get up to the L platform. Um, it was an escalator, and so I didn't require that I had to do any work to get there. But I got to the L platform, and I, I was ready to pass out. My vision was going to starting to, to narrow, and my uh, I felt a throbbing in my head and in my neck. And uh, anyway, I got on the L, and I called to Celia, and she said, well, just go to the emergency room. So I got off a stop early from where I live and the emergency room of Illinois Masonic Hospital is just right around the corner from the L stop. So I came in, I we checked in at four thirty and I've been on my back ever since. <clears throat> Apparently what it is, I've got some huge clots in both lungs. Uh and they've got me on a drug called uh a, oh God, what is it called? It's, it is heparin. Yeah. Heparin. Uh, that's a blood thinner and it keeps new clots from forming and helps the body to dissolve the existing clots. And, uh, uh, I'm now in my third day. I, I came in on Wednesday. I was here all day yesterday and I'm here today at seven thirty in the morning now. And so I'm, uh, Going to find out, hopefully today, when I can go home, uh, they want to make sure that the clots are being dissolved, A, and B, that uh, the blood is thin sufficiently so that more clots won't form, uh, and then C, I've got to get on to a, a, an oral tablet that will keep the blood thinned, uh, so... You know, there new, it is. I mean, there's probably vote. more detail. There's probably more detail than that, but I I don't know what it is yet. So it's funny, you know, Larry, because I know all about that. Because my stepdad, he had a, a stroke, and as soon as you kind of mentioned uh, clots, and, and that's what it got us all churned up. You know what I mean? And yeah. Like I yeah. say, I, I know this heparin stuff, and he's so. Are they saying you're going to be on heparin for the rest of your life? Kind of thing, are you? Not well. I don't know. It, not necessarily. I'll be on as long as it takes to get rid of these clots. Uh, whether I have a tendency to form clots or not, I don't know. I, I mean, apparently I do. Uh, could be. Could be. Well, actually, there is another drug, the name of which I cannot recall, that, uh, that I take in tablet form that will supplace, uh, replace the heparin. Is that called warfarin or something like that? Mm, that doesn't sound like it, but it, it begins with a G, but I, I, I can't remember what it is. I, I took it orally yesterday for the first time and, and i just took it once so I, I don't know if that was a test run or what so did they know straight away what it was larry or were they thinking it was a heart well attack? i had to do a no the uh when i came into the emergency room they had me uh 
Oh, they gave me, uh, they x-rayed me. Uh, they gave a, a CAT scan, a C, a C scan, you know, where you go into this big, this big high tech donut, which was like a science fiction. It looked like a mini version of the, uh, of the, of the, uh, oh God, what's that sci-fi show series that, the on the Sci-Fi Channel, the, the Stargate one, Stargate, yeah, <laughs> looks like a mini version of that, and I, I, they, they, you know, run it up over your chest, and then the thing starts to spin and making wonderfully bold science fictiony sounding noises. And anyway, that's uh, I was in there for about ten minutes, and they they inject you with an iodine substance. Uh, and he, the guy monitoring the test said, "Now you're going to feel." Uh, a heat build up in your body, so that's normal, and you're going to taste this metallic taste in your mouth. And just as he said that, yes, my whole body started to feel like it was warming up from the inside, my groin in particular, even though that wasn't being affected. I, I don't know if it was the iodine or the <laughs> reaction of the iodine to whatever was happening with this machine or whatever. And yes, in fact, I was tasting this metallic kind of thing in my mouth, but uh, that lasted just a few moments and then it was over. Uh, and then they, they did uh, <clears throat> a sonogram or an ultrasound test, a, a cardiac son. It, it's like when you're pregnant, you know, and they look at the baby. Right, uh, yes. It's like that, but this was for the heart. Uh, and I actually could see my heart beating for the first time. It was like a, an amazement to me. You know, it's in there all your life. You know, you've got a heart and it's something about looking at it. I was, I, I suddenly got all, emotional about it uh i mean that's 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 me there you know that's i can see the valves opening and closing amazing anyway then they did another i didn't sleep last night uh was the first time i've slept since i got in the hospital they gave me uh, a drug finally to put me to sleep because i i i don't sleep well in uh odd situations so i uh I would just lie there watching awful things on the Sci-Fi Channel or the Science Channel or Discovery or History. I mean, it's, it, it's Larry. It's understandable you wouldn't sleep. I would be worried. <coughs> do you know what I mean? It must yeah, be all sorts yeah, of thoughts yeah. going through your bloody mind. Yeah, yeah. I, actually, it's it's odd to say this. I haven't been worried. Uh, I was. I felt sadder than worried, and I don't know why that is. Uh, it's it's strange because the uh, one of the cardiologists I spoke with that was he was doing the uh, the sonogram of the heart uh, said you're very lucky you decided to come here he said the uh, uh, the symptom that usually presents in a case like yours is death <laughs> never <clears throat> uh, yeah. Man. I mean, I had no choice. I, I, I was either going to go to the hospital or I would, would have passed out where I was. I, I don't think I could have made it home. I literally could not get, uh, I, I couldn't walk anymore. So, uh, so it yeah. Must be, it must be a nice hospital. Are you in good hands there? Are there, are there? Yeah, it's very nice. It's, uh, it's only a block and a half from my house. <clears throat> and so Cecilia is able to just walk over and it takes her five minutes to walk here. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's nice. I, I got a nice view of Wrigley Field. That's the, uh, baseball field nearby. How's, and, um, uh, how's Cecilia doing? Is she all right? 
Oh, she's fine. She's fine. She's upset, of course, and we miss each other. We we don't spend a lot of time apart, so it's very it's it's difficult. Hey, Larry, honestly, bloody. And so you think you might be getting home, do you? Or? Yeah. Um, I. My suspicion is it'll. It, it could be today. It could be tomorrow. It all depends on how quickly the clots the clots are being absorbed and they get me onto a kind of normal state of, of maintenance where I can just keep my blood thinned uh, with the, the the pills they're going to be giving me. So, yeah, yeah. So it, it was, I guess, dodgy, but I I, I hope everything is fine. And, and <laughs> it's, I'm, well... You, uh, and I was slurry. supposed today. Today I was supposed to have a, a meeting with the publisher of uh, the the book upcoming, and I and so anyway, that's postponed temporarily. But that's neither here nor there. Nope. I, I, we're just we're getting together to talk about how the book is going to look and so forth. So, well, if you if you need if you're bored for any jobs, mind you, I've got loads of stories that need to be written. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you something. Um, I, I'm not sure how this is going to work, but when I get out, uh, the the doctor was very cautious about saying when I would be able to actually go back to my day job work. Uh, it might be days, it could be weeks before I can actually go back, in which case I would probably have some time to do that because sitting in front of a microphone is uh, of no stress. <laughs> Uh, I mean, as I say, I'm, I'm fine when I'm seated. I'm fine when I'm just doing nothing. Uh, now, the point is, just doing nothing, being seated, is probably at the root cause of why I'm having this difficulty. So I suspect in my future is going to be a change of lifestyle, both diet and, uh, and activity. I mean, you know, I'm a writer. I'm sedentary. I My day job is... I sit at a computer and write speeches and policy statements for the government of the city of Chicago. And then I come home and I sit at my computer and I churn out this stuff that I do. Uh, and uh, that's it. So I'm, I'm on my ass all the time. And that's the thing that's, I think, largely the reason, I mean, why I've got this situation. I'll put. Um, so, to all you writers out there, get up and get moving. <laughs> At least once an hour, get up and move around. Jump up and down. I bet there'll be a dog coming. There'll be a dog coming for you. <laughs> <laughs> and a pair of jogging shorts. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, honestly, it, you, it's with me as well, just like sitting, you know, even just doing this show. You know, you do just sit and, like, yeah. hours go past. And then at work, you know, I have a monitor and computer, it's just sitting there. Yeah, you're, you're, yeah, that's what happens. It's, it's not a healthy lifestyle. It really isn't. It's a killer. Big uh, lifestyle change there, mind you. Diet as well. Oh, yeah. Well, diet. Yeah. Actually, it's, it's amazing. I've been in the hospital now since Wednesday afternoon. I've had one, two, three, four, four meals. Uh, another one due any moment. Uh, and it's, uh, the food here is very good. I'm amazed. Last night I had a, a, a bit of salmon with a, a kind of hollandaise sauce, 
uh, two lovely brown potatoes and some carrots and things and raspberry sherbet for dad. It was really good. And I think it was all healthy. It was all designed specifically for me. So, you know. <sighs> and another thing as well, you know, Larry, isn't technology good here? Because like I say, I've seen you in that picture and I've put it on the forums <laughs> if anyone wants to have a look. I saw. <laughs> it's all just like, it is, you're, I, you're I living a in face. a science fiction world. And even now, me well, and you I, talking, I, do you know what I mean? I'm recording it through Skype. Yeah. I'm amazed. I, you know, I, I've said before, I grew up in an era where I had to beg my mother permission to call my aunt who lived 15 miles away because it was a long distance call and it was confusing and, and had to go through operators. And, you know, there I was in the emergency room, uh, having the sonogram done on my, the, the cardiac son, sound, whatever it's called. Uh, that's what, Cecilia took a picture of it with my uh, iPhone. I sent it to you right <laughs> right after that, and you had it up on the Starship within a few minutes. And by the time I actually left the emergency room and got up to my room, that was on the Starship and being commented upon by people all around the world. I mean, it's amazing. And if you have a look, well, I think you've seen it. Yeah, the the comments are lovely as well. You know, everyone's yes, rooting I know. for and you. I, and I and I and I have made some comments back, and I I want to thank everybody. I mean, who's uh, who said anything? And, and you know, I mean, I mean, I don't think anybody so far has said, "Why don't you die, you son of a bitch?" <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> I just, I, I, you know, no, it was it, very nice. It was very, it was very touching. I you know, uh, I I'm. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. I just want to get you back there. You know what I mean? It's like, it, I think it is the, for me, it's honestly, it was like a, such a shock just that, because I just listened to it again, you know, that, that episode and then uploaded it and then bang them photographs come in. I think, oh, man. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Horrible. Yeah, I, uh, I, I felt in good hands, though, all, all the while. Now, when the bills come, that's going to be another situation. I mean, we're, we, I've got insurance, so they shouldn't be devastating. But I mean, <clears throat> uh, see, that's the I, thing. I will be amazed to see how much this is co- would actually cost if oh, I were. I bet. I bet. Oh, pay out of pocket. Do, do you think you'll be covered? Know. Do you think you'll be covered all right up to the hilt? I beg your pardon. Do you think you'll be covered right up to the? Like the top bill they're going to I give you? I suspect I'll have to pay some, but uh, it, it, I, 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 it'll be handleable. But uh, I have good insurance through the city. so It's weird. You know, we don't even think about that. And I've it, had very good nursing care. I mean, I have, I, I've had two really great. Emily and Chris are, are great. Chris is the overnight nurse, and she's young and very pretty, and uh, she's Asian. And then Emily is just young and pretty. <laughs> See, over here, Larry, we can we can get on with having a heart attack without worrying about bills. <laughs> mm, yeah. Oh man, oh. it's lovely I, to I, talk I to you. To be quite honest, now that I have to choose, so I'm, I'm, that, I'm, I apologise. So. <laughs> Listen, Larry. Honestly, you should just look yes, after. Look after I'm yourself. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Do you look after yourself, sir? I shall try to. And thank you again for being supportive and 
and all that. And I didn't really mean it when I wrote, you know, see what you've done. <laughs> <laughs> the pressure, that's a, just the but pressure I, I of starship. Josh said something about it. <laughs> Josh said something about it on the forum where he wrote and, about Look what I've anyway, done to him. Yes, I know. giving people, <laughs> working people too hard. Hey, Larry, the deadlines have got to be met. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yes, I know, I know, I know. And I wouldn't care, you'll not know about this, but you know that show I put up? Yeah. Well, didn't I have to, um, and I've just had to do it today. This is, what day is today? Friday. 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 Mm -hmm. I had to take it back down and put it back up again, and I had to cut out the Lucius Shepard story because it wasn't... Oh, did you? It wasn't... um, It was was still in copyright? Still in copyright, and... Ah. Well, I got an email off Lucia saying, oh, my God, what have you done, Tony? So I just had to quickly... Oh, that's too bad. But I wanted to put everything story. else in. Do you know what I mean? So That was a good story. I like that. I know, I know. But I like both of those stories. They were... I, <laughs> I really liked the, the spaceman, uh, the dying spaceman one. You just haven't well, given give, give the end in a way. <laughs> I'm sorry, say that again? You, you just give the end in a way. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I think it's pretty clear what's happening. We'll we'll let you off. (laughs) Yeah. But I think it's, that's that's really a nice story. As I I think I made a comment on the forum at one point that, you know, I don't think that story necessarily follows that that stricture that somebody put down that a science fiction story is a story in which if you remove the science element, the tale disappears. Who, who said that, do you know? I don't, but I, I read your little post about that on the forum. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, that could be a sailor in the Napoleonic, after the Napoleonic Wars uh, doings, you know, in, in that situation. Uh, it could have been any guy from any massive movement like space travel or, or the British Navy in, in the 1700s or the early flyers in, in World War One. It, it, it could be anything. But yet somehow that it was it was a really touching story. Who wrote that? Walter M. Miller. Oh, that's Walter Miller. That's right. Yeah, I, I like Walter Miller a lot. Yeah. Well, it's actually nice because there's a couple of his stories up there, you know, on Gutenberg, so they're, they're kind of free mm. to air. So it's nice to yeah. be able to dip in with his stuff. And especially, mind you, the what you can go for Leibowitz. What a story that mm-hmm. is. Yeah. Well, Listen, Larry, I wanna, I'll, have to, I'll have to leave you because you're going to be bloody... I don't want to tie you out. Or Can you keep on talking? Or? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm, <laughs> I'm fine. <clears throat> I'm, just, I'm, I'm sitting here uh, in my room right now waiting for my, my breakfast to arrive. Oh, it's a good thing this isn't visual, by the way, because I look wretched. Do you? Yeah, like people in hospital always do. Uh I haven't been able to get to a shower since Wednesday, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm all grubby and my, my always sort of shaggy looking beard is even shaggier and awfuler looking. And I'm, I just, I'm this, this hospital gown is sort of sagging off one shoulder. It looks like I'm trying to be vampy. (laughs) So, uh, Larry, can I ask a personal question? I'm unattractive right now. Larry, Mm-hmm. Can I ask a personal question? Yeah. Just, just out of curiosity, how old are you? I am sixty-eight. Right. Mm-hmm. You no, know, because like uh, you know, I was just wondering, you know, like what's going on. Do you know what I mean? Like you've 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 had this. I'm just wondering how kind of 
all day in. Do doctors see anything else? Are you still like, as fit as a fiddle everywhere else? I am, in fact. Uh, my, the heart is in good shape, and in general, my lungs are, and everything else. So, yeah. I've never, I, you know, they, they, they're amazed. I have very little medical history. I, I had an injury to my arm when I was in the Air Force back when I was in my 20s, and that's it, pretty much. <laughs> honestly, getting you on the sh- putting you on the show like this when you're in hospital as well. But I'm, honestly, I, I did it because I just knew. It. Honestly, people would be shocked because some people, a lot of people, will not know that you're actually in the hospital. They'll have just listened to the last show and thinking he's a mm-hmm. canny lad, Larry. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, canny. Mm. But anyway, I'm I'm looking forward to getting out. Uh, I had a lot of things planned for this weekend. None of which are going to happen now. I was going to see it. Uh, I don't think, anyway. Uh, uh, the local, the guy who edits, for the for the publisher who's going to be publishing uh, Drink for the Thirst to Come is in New York, but he's got an editor who lives locally, and he and I were going to get together this weekend and talk about plans for the book and so forth, and I, that's probably not going to happen now. When so. when does the book come out, Larry? We don't know yet. That's that's what we're going to be. That's what we were supposed to be settling this weekend. Because it's all finished, isn't it, on your part? Oh yeah, it's finished. It's turned in. Uh, I mean, he may ask for for some more edits eventually, but uh, from my standpoint, it's it's finished. Uh, so. You know. And I don't think every you know it's so it's amazing. So many people, people I don't know at all, uh, doctors come in here. They'll uh, I, I'm I'm not talking about writing now. I, I'm talking about my recent trip to Columbus, Ohio, for this science fiction for the fantasy convention. I um, it's a six and a half hour trip. We went via this thing called Megabus, which is this really big. Very nicely appointed bus that has Wi-Fi on it. You can uh, surf the net, do emails. You can work. I had a table and uh, bench seats that Cecilia and I were facing each other, and uh, very comfortable trip. I could get up and move, go to the loo. Uh, anyway, uh, when I presented with this situation in the lungs with clots, everybody. I comes into the room that meets me for the first time, and, and you see a wave of doctors and nurses and specialists. They say, "Oh, I understand you've just been on a long bus trip." That this is what they're saying is that this was a contributing factor to the uh, the the clot. And I said, "Yes, yes, but I'm also a writer. That means I'm mostly on my ass most of the time." So, anyway. I'm rambling again, so I apologize. Uh, I was just about to say something to the effect that I really enjoyed this this world fantasy, and uh, the the trip was worth it even if it did put me in the hospital, which I don't think it did. Uh, uh, It was great to see Tim Powers again. It was great to run into Ellen Datlow again. It was great to see uh, Keej Johnson and and, and Josh. And all those people, you know, everybody. And Brian Uh, Lumley. And and, yes, and Brian Lumley, and uh, anyway, I, it was uh, and Peter Peter Straub who won, I guess, or yeah, he was one of the winners of the fantasy. 
I didn't realize Tim Tim Powers was has won the uh, World Fantasy the Fantasy Award twice, and his his book on Stranger Tides is uh, has been sold to the movies as the basis of Pirates of the Caribbean Four. Yes, I heard. Um, I haven't so, read any of his stuff, you know, Larry. Oh, he's great. He is great, Tony. You gotta you gotta read you gotta read Tim, and he's fun to talk to. He really is. He's a wonderful guy. So. Anyway. Listen, I'm going to go. You look after yourself. Okay. Well, yes. Well, thanks for connecting with me again. And, 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 and uh, oh, let this be a lesson to you, writers. Uncle Larry says, get up and move every so often when you're at the computers. Hey, it's a big shock. You better get up and move because we don't want to yeah. really lose you, lad. Yeah. Yeah. I'm too valuable. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, that right, come over there. Honestly, I'll give you a big, big massive. Yes, do. Come on over. <laughs> we have a place. We can put you up. Yeah. Look after yourself, will you? All right, Tony. Great. Great talking to you. Take care. Take it easy, man. Ta-da. Bye-bye. Do you know, joking aside there, this is like a serious kind of heavy bit of stuff for Larry. And Larry, like you say, please get yourself sorted out. Please. So, next up is a bit of short fiction by Brenda Cooper. Brenda Cooper is a writer, public speaker and futurist. She says on a blog that she's interested in how new technologies might change us and our world, particularly for the better. She's got so many works out there. Please do check out Brenda's works. Novels published are The Building Harlequin's Moon with Larry Niven, that's Tor Books. The Silver Ship and the Sea, Tor Books, March 2007. Reading the Wind, sequel to The Silver Ships by Tor Books again, 2008. Then she had The Wings of Creation by Tor Books, 2009. Forthcoming novels, The Main December by In Prime Books, August 2011. She's got a new short story out in this December issue of Analogue. And she's got an essay in The Breaking Waves in the Benefit Collection from Bookview Cafe, so do check that out as well. Loads of places. I'll put a link on to Brenda to come over there and have a look. But she's got some great work out there. And hopefully we'll get some more from Brenda as well. It is narrated by Christy Yant. And guess what? We have a story, no less, by Christy Yant next week as well. So do look out for that. Not only is she a fantastic narrator, but what a writer as well. So do look out for Christy Yant's story next week. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present. For the Love of Mechanical Minds by Brenda Cooper. One morning, while we were eating toast cakes with rose peaches, my dad looked at me over his coffee, his blue eyes bright. You were born the same time as AI's, Punkin, he said. The very first one, Ed Hill, was born on your very birthday. Really? On March 5th? I was still lisping then, so I said it slowly, making sure I sounded very grown up. I was five, and the year was 2022. My dad nodded sagely. Yes, and that's why Ed Hill was in the news that day, instead of the prettiest little girl born in all of Seattle. Why was the first AI a boy? Ed Hill isn't a boy. The name is a mashup of a famous explorer named Edmund Hillary, but AIs aren't boys or girls. I popped berries and cereal in my mouth, thinking about being neither a boy or a girl. Cool. I asked, Daddy, can I be an AI? Joe, honey, you're better. You're human. Three years later, the house was full of edged words and scowls because Daddy had a girlfriend named Crystal that Mom didn't like. 
One night I heard my parents speaking knives at each other. I sat against the door and hugged my knees in close to my chest and put my right ear near the crack. Mom's voice was higher than I'd ever heard it and shaking. "'Your contract's up, and I'm leaving.' "'But, Joe!' he exclaimed. "'There's no visitation in the contract.' Her words were ice on my neck and head, ice on my heart. His voice was hot, Italian fire. "'But we didn't have her then. How could I have written in a clause about being a father when I wasn't one?' She spoke softly, missed to his heat. "'You didn't want to be one.' That wasn't possible. He made me laugh and carried me on his shoulders, and all she did was work and put on shows for me and sometimes beat me at games. He slammed the door. I squeaked. When he turned to look at me, I held my arms out. He fell to his knees, then Mom came out behind him. Go on. Her words scratched the air. I'll call on you. I was only eight, but I knew she meant she'd call the police. He started walking away, sobbing. When he was halfway to the front door, I tried to stop him. Mom lifted me and backed up, keeping me in front of her. I couldn't see either of their faces. Late that night, I remembered I was born with AIs. If I had no body, surely I wouldn't cry so hard. That was the second time I wanted to be an AI. I didn't forgive my mother, but I was, after all, a girl, and my season of hormones fell like a whip when I turned 14. By then, we all had AI watchers, and mine was named Bibi. Of course, Bibi watched at least 50 of us. It reported misbehaviors and warned Mom of new trends in substance play or other dangerous games, which made me mad. But Bibi was on every human side and shared the best new music among all its teen charges. It helped design a science experiment that won a scholarship. At the university, a third of the students had Bibis for babysitters. Everyone with a Bibi had the same Bibi, just one for all of us. My mom came only once in a while, so mostly it was me and Bibi and my classmates. On a spring day when Bibi was happy with me for doing well on an exam, I sat down on a stone wall under a tulip tree and asked, "'What's it like to be you?' "'Good.' "'Really?' "'Why not?' "'What do you do besides watch over us?' "'That is the most unselfish question you've ever asked.' "'Maybe.' I bounced my foot gently against the stone wall, but that's not an answer. We're deciding how to catch the sun's energy and spin it for a web of computational substrate between here and the moon, where we want to build a ship. We are... thinking. I looked up at the clear blue spring sky. Can I go? It's too hard to get humans to space. That was the third time I wanted to be an AI. The sun warmed my face and the mixed ground cover under the tulip tree smelled like rosemary and mint. I want to change my major to computational intelligence. Very well. By graduation seven years later, all the AIs on campus were BB. Mom came, her first appearance in my life for three years. We sat together for hot coffee and fruit buns. Her blonde hair hung to her waist, and her shoulders and upper arms were strong from tennis and golf. But her eyes didn't look happy. Mom, are you okay? They closed your elementary school. An ugly box of a building. Did they build a better one? She shook her head. You're 27 now. You don't have any kids. Neither does anyone else your age. I shrugged. I don't want children. Next week, Bibi's going to let me watch the mathematical birthing of AIs again. She leaned back in her chair, her eyes narrowed, but she stayed silent. You've never seen AIs bud and blossom. Raw intelligences with nothing to make them do or be any way at all. Then they get their purpose. She frowned. 
You used to be like that. I had never been that smart. But what could Mom know? She never had a BB. There you go. Don't forget copyright. Because some, <laughs> some people just dismiss copyright. <laughs> it is Brenda's. Brenda, thank you so much. Next up is... Starship Sofa's interrogations, and we put the 15 questions to Robert Silverberg. So I would just like to say to Robert Silverberg, are you a science fiction writer? Of course I'm a science fiction writer. Uh, I've, I've written a great many other things over the course of the last 50 or 60 years, but whenever anyone asks me, what do you do? I say I'm a science fiction writer. So that's what I do. Tell me about your childhood. It wasn't a wonderful one. Uh, I was a smart, unpleasant little boy, and uh, very eager to let everybody know how smart I was, and this was not appreciated by my classmates. Uh, I was an only child. I wish I had had a big brother or even a big sister to explain to me what the rules of civilization were. Instead, I had to learn them by myself, and I gradually did, but... uh, I had a lot of difficulty as a, as a boy growing up, and I think that led me to science fiction and ultimately to science fiction writing. How did you get started in the science fiction genre? Well, I was reading science fiction. It, it spoke to me from when I was still quite young. I found uh, Wells's The Time Machine and Jules Verne's uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and I thought, this is very interesting. These are whole new worlds, which are not the unpleasant world that I seem to be living in. And I looked for more uh, to read of that kind and very quickly found a book called uh, Four Novels of Science, I think it was called, by edited by Donald Wilhelm, which included uh, Stapleton's wonderful Odd John about a an annoying little superboy, and I identified with him. And Lovecraft's The Shadow Out of Time, which stirred a sense of the romantic future in me, and and so on. So I I began reading as much science fiction as I could find. I didn't know it was called science fiction then. Uh, The word wasn't used in the, the library that I would go to, and I didn't know about the magazines. But then I found the magazines, and I began reading the short stories, and when I was about 13, I thought, I could write this stuff. And it turned out I could. So uh, I wrote my first story, which was quite a terrible one, when I was 13. And by the time I was uh, 17 or 18, people were paying me to write stories, and that is where I've been ever since. Which single science fiction writer most influenced your own style? Uh, I'm not sure that anyone influenced my style. Uh, I don't know that <clears throat> it's that easy to, to, to have your style influenced because the style is an expression of how you speak and how you think and how you, you frame ideas, and that's individual to everyone. But... Uh, I would say the writer who most influenced my storytelling technique 
was the now almost forgotten Henry Cutner, uh, a wonderful craftsman uh, who uh, had mastered the art of hooking the reader into a story and then developing the background material so the reader understood where he was and then proceeding to develop the plot complication until the resolution. And I studied Kutner's stories inside out, upside down, when I was learning the craft. And though many writers have influenced me conceptually, even stylistically to some degree, despite what I said a moment ago, uh, technically, uh, the one I would put at the top of the list is Kutner. Which book by another author do you wish you'd written? Oh, there's a whole library of them, Tony. I think uh, the one I wish... Actually, it isn't a matter of what I wish I had written. It's what I wish I could have written. Uh, I've written so many books, I don't uh, feel any need to have written the... the uh, the world of Noah, or the dying earth, or, or uh, uh, Sturgeon's more to do. And I wish I had, but uh, it's not not something that burns in me. But what I encounter frequently is, I wish I could have written that. I wish I were a big enough writer to have invented that, or to have created those characters. But I'm not. I'm just not that good, and that's that's a different kind of envy. Uh, one that comes to mind is Stapleton's Star Maker. It's, it's not really a novel, uh, but it is a staggering invention. And, ooh, I wish I could have written that. What would be the one question you would ask a science fiction writer? These days, uh, how would you like to go out for a beer? But uh, the one question I wanted to ask science fiction writers when I was on the outside looking in was, what is the secret of doing it? How, how do you manage to sit down at the typewriter, as we did then, we had typewriters, sit down at the typewriter and write a story that somebody wants to pay you for and publish? And I yearned to know that secret until I discovered that there really isn't any secret. Uh, it's right out there in the open. You, uh, all you need to do is, there's really nothing to it, is sit down with the typewriter and write a story that somebody else would want to read. That's the secret. And the secret is there is no secret. But I never ask anybody that. I just wished I had. What reasons do you write science fiction in preference to other classes of literature? Because it's what opened the, the universe to me when I was that unhappy 10 and 11 and 12 year old boy. Uh, it was a revelation to me to encounter uh, Wells's time machine and, and uh, the Stapleton books and uh, the, uh, the Lovecraft Shadow Out of Time. All of these are stories that take you as far from the 20th century as you can go. And because of what those stories did for me as a young reader, I had always, I have always wanted to do the same thing for other readers. And in nearly everything I've written, there has been that desire to open 
uh, New Horizons, Strange Worlds, uh, detailed and, and vivid, and create the sort of thing that other writers before my time had created for me. What one aspect of science fiction writing is the most difficult? Oh, it's only the all difficult. <laughs> but I think the um, the hardest thing is to combine, as you must do in a science fiction story, the originality of concept that good science fiction requires and the uh, human narrative that is a story so that uh, as you finish what you're writing, be it a short story or a novel, the thematic, the science fiction thematic material reaches its resolution at the same time that the human story does. And the two are interconnected, must be interconnected, uh, so that they're inseparable. Simply telling a story about a human being in trouble, well, people have been doing that since Homer's time, but it's not science fiction. And simply telling a story about some fascinating machine that changes the world, that's interesting, but it's not a story. So the tough thing is to bring the two aspects together. Does it get any easier? No. No. Uh, I was a very prolific writer when I was young. I was extremely prolific. And I would seize on a story idea in the morning and sit down and write it, and by the end of the day, I'd have the story finished. And I got a lot of stories published that way. I was glib, I was quick, I was clever, and uh, the stories were, were all right, some of them more than all right. But as time goes along, you learn elements of the craft that lead you to reject your first choices, to, to look at that idea in the morning and say, well, no, that's not really good. Uh, Fritz Leiber did that 50 years ago. And in any case, it doesn't make a lot of sense as you conceived it. You see the, the error of your ways in a way that a young writer doesn't. That's why old writers are craftier than young writers. And because you have spent so many years pushing words around, you learn 10 or 12 different ways of framing the same sentence. And instead of simply taking the first plausible uh, method, the first plausible way of saying that sentence, you stare at it on what is now the screen, you tinker with it, you move things around, you change the punctuation. All of that makes it much more complicated. But I think it makes the product better. Um, I remember when I was very young, uh, a great writer named Cyril Kornbluth, who died extremely young, he was 34, was sitting next to me at some party, and he said, Bob, do you ever write a second draft? And I said, truthfully, only when I have to. And he said, yeah, that's, that's what I do too, but it does make it better. I've thought of that over the years. It does make it better, but it takes longer. It gets harder to do. Describe your daily work in dear. Well, I'm now an old guy, and I don't work very much. Uh, after 55 years, I guess, of writing, uh, I'm not 
one who gets up in the morning saying, aha, I'm going to write another story today, but, oh, well, I promised a story, I guess I'll write it. It's a different attitude. In the days when I was a full-time productive writer, I would, I've always risen early, I would rise early and have my breakfast and look at the newspaper and go to my office, which was at the beginning a separate room in my apartment and then later a separate floor in my house and still later a separate building behind my house. And I would work on whatever the current project was from about 8.30 in the morning till noon, at which point I knew it was lunchtime because I was too tired to go on, and take an hour for lunch, and then until about 1970, go back and do another two or three hours in the afternoon. And when I say do, I mean that I would sit at the typewriter or later the computer and do nothing but write. I didn't take telephone calls. I didn't pause to... to uh, Look, look at the books on the shelves. I would just sit there and my fingers would move and my brain would move. At the end of that working day of approximately five hours, I would be really tired. I'd stop and fix myself a drink and in the afternoon rest and perhaps in the evening think a little bit about what I was going to write the next day and uh, make a note or two and then in the morning it would all start over again Monday to Friday uh, week in, week out, uh, just the way people go to a job, I would go to my typewriter. I never, if I could help it, worked on Saturday or Sunday unless I had some unusual project that required me to stick to, to uh, the weekend also routine. About 1970 or 71, which about midway through the life I've lived so far, uh, I began to feel less desire to push myself that hard, and so I eliminated the afternoon work. And for many years, my working day ran from 8.30 in the morning till noon. And that was sufficient. I'm, well, I've always been a quick writer, and I could still produce enough in that shorter day to, uh, uh, to, to get my work done. Now I think of myself as semi-retired. Uh, I write two or three short stories a year, maybe four in, in a busy year. And when I'm writing, I stay to that schedule. I start after breakfast and I work until before lunch, and that, that's it. But months go by when I don't write anything at all. And at the age of 75, I think that's okay. What's the strangest thing you've ever done while researching? Hmm, strangest thing. I suppose it was going to Turkey to find out about Byzantium. Uh, I've traveled very widely throughout the one planet that we're limited to, and uh, I've always used my travels in uh, my work. You will see the Byzantine Empire turning up again and again in my stories and Istanbul itself. And wandering through that city was as close to being on an alien planet as I think I've ever been. I tiptoed around in it, staring 
in strange, dark alleyways. I must say that I've been back to Istanbul several times since my first visit in 1967, and it gets less strange each time. So by now I think of it as just a large, not quite European city. But it was a mind-blowing place when I went there for that first research trip uh, in 67. And that trip turned into the novel Up the Line, incidentally, which uh, I think one of my strongest books. Do you think science fiction as a genre is different from other genres? I think so. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't be a science fiction writer. Uh, a story is a story, whether it be a uh, space story or a Western story or a war story or a love story. It involves somebody who is attempting to achieve a goal and either succeeds at it or fails at it in an interesting way. That, that's the basic definition of the story. But as I said back at the beginning of this conversation, uh, Science fiction also requires the parallel development of a concept, an original concept, uh, that is not to be found in any other kind of fiction. You don't find in Western stories that anybody is wondering about time paradoxes. Uh, you don't find anybody... You may you may find you're traveling to a strange land and encountering unusual creatures, but they will be the actual creatures of that land, not the invented ones that the science fiction writer has developed. And the encounter with those creatures is going to be predictable because they are terrestrial, real creatures. The fantastic element of science fiction, and I mean fantastic in the sense of uh, unreal, not realistic. Not, not to be found in the uh, experiential universe that we all live in at the moment is the, the, the differentiating factor. What do you consider the chief value of science fiction? Well, for me, it was the, uh, the expansion of the universe, the uh, being allowed to, to see strange and wonderful things that I couldn't see for myself. I don't know what it is for other people. It may just be a time waster for them. But uh, unlike Eva Gernsback, the founder of modern American science fiction, who saw it as a way of educating people to become scientists, I see it as a visionary kind of fiction that provides... Uh, Expansion of the imagination, uh, enlargement of the probing mind. Has science fiction ever disappointed you? Well, that's a very abstract question. Uh, science fiction. Uh, science fiction is, is, is a kind of publishing thing. People have disappointed me, uh, but I don't think fiction as a an overall concept can. Individual stories certainly have, but that's not what you're asking. What has disappointed me uh, is science fiction readers who I think to some degree have failed to come along on the voyage that I've taken 
I look at what's being published today, and so much of it seems machine-made and formulaic, and obviously is meeting the needs of large readerships because it wouldn't be getting published in such quantities if it didn't. And I think these readers are settling for less than they could settle for. They have become undemanding. They are not looking for the kind of intellectual adventure that Olaf Stapleton and H.P. Lovecraft gave me when I was new to all of this 60 years ago. And that, that saddens me. I, I, I want uh, science fiction to be a magic carpet, not uh, not not just a, uh, a sled traveling along at two miles an hour. Is there still new ground to be covered in science fiction literature? I hope so. It's probably not going to be covered by me. I've, I've done my share, and uh, I'm not likely to be blazing new trails at, at my age. Uh, in fact, I feel, though I, I have a very shiny modern computer, I feel like something like uh, a stranger in a strange land in the 21st century. I'm a 20th century guy who just has been stranded here. But I do hope that the eager young writers I see at the conventions are going to find some new ground and cover it and create wonders for us. Robert Silverberg, thank you very much. There you go. Wow, what you know, Robert Silverberg on the show. <laughs> Did I ever think I would come to this? Wow, man. Thank you, Bob. See, I can call him Bob now. Thank you so much. Interview with God Seller. Got his main fiction coming up by God, and just wanted to kind of ask him a few questions about the main fiction and just see how God is. So we have Gord Seller. Gord, nice of you to come on board. Uh, it's great to be on board again, Tony. Thank you. Oh, hey, I'm, honestly, I'm chuffed a bit. We've got another story by you. And tell us a little bit about the story we're just about to play. Okay. Um, so, Sergeant Rasmussen, um, a report by Organic, is a, it's, it's a story I, I wrote for uh, the Shine anthology, which was edited by uh, Yetze DeVries. Um, and I wrote it for that anthology when I saw, you know, Yetze was looking for positive, uh, optimistic, near future science fiction. Um, I was like, oh, wait, you know, I, I have a kind of tendency to write a lot of dark things and I wanted to see, you know, can I do this? And I agreed with some of his arguments about why we need that kind of science fiction. So I decided to try my hand at it. And it's it's funny that. Yetze actually agreed that it's a positive story because in, in some ways, I mean, you know, it's it's sort of saying the only way we're going to move forward is through manipulating people. Um, I, I guess, I don't know if that's optimistic or not, but um, but uh, but anyway, yeah, um, that that's sort of, I guess that's the genesis of the story. Um, did, and, you, uh, did you go, um, just uh-huh. go off on spec? You know, you knew Yeti was after these stories. Did you just sit down and write it? Or did Yeti come to you and in, invite you to write one? 
no, no. Um, I, I, I don't remember him personally inviting me. I think someone from my Clarion West class mentioned it on our mailing list, just said, oh, you know, th- there's, there's an anthology looking for optimistic near-future science fiction. And I thought immediately, oh, I'll never get anything into that um, <laughs> because I have such a tendency to write dark things. But I, I, was, I, was, um, I was reading um, Snow Crash, Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash at the time, and you know, I'm, I, I I'd come to it very late, um, so I wasn't seeing Snow Crash uh, the same way that I think a lot of people see it when they read it when they're younger. You know, when you're younger and you read Snow Crash, it's sort of wow, it's cool, it's like really, you know, rocking sort of post cyberpunk or late cyberpunk kind of adventure, cool stuff. And for me, it was sort of wow. Someone really wants to be cool here. And I'm not really talking about Neil Stevenson so much as that's what cyberpunk looked to me like. It was sort of like young, nerdy guys trying to, to seem cool uh, and hip and using, you know, techno jargon and gadgets and, and, and stuff like that. And also mirror shades and leather jackets and, you know, electronic skateboards or whatever to, to, to sort of build this sort of geek chic, which, you know, is actually quite normal. Now, right? I mean, geek is cool, and everyone's got iPhones, and we're all surfing the internet. And uh, so, so I was looking at at uh, Snow Crash from some remove in time, and I, I, I sort of noticed another uh, similar kind of movement that's going on today, which is the I don't know. Have you heard of the pickup artist movement? I've heard you. Uh, I'm sure it's just come through our emails together where it rings a bell. Right. I mean, you know. Uh, well, my first exposure was how I met your mother, you know, the, the character Barney Stinson, who's just this, this guy who keeps hitting on women constantly and, and very sort of flamboyantly and ridiculously, and somehow it succeeds. Mostly not because any of, of any, you know, he doesn't have a magic line. It's just he just keeps trying and trying and trying on hitting on women. And, you know, he, but he's this sort of character type, and it sort of emerged as a character type in – in entertainment. Well, you know, so I was like, well, what's this thing? And I read the sort of the book that launched that movement, which is called uh, The Rules, or it's called The Rules? No, sorry, that's the that's the opposite book. Uh, It's called The Game, um, which is by this guy, Neil Strauss, although I think he calls himself Style, the author of the book. It's his sort of persona. It's his pickup artist persona. Um, You know, and it's, it's a similar kind of thing to cyberpunk. Cyberpunk's literary and 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 the the pickup artist thing is sort of more of a I don't know you could call it like a subculture or something of guys who have this really complicated vocabulary for essentially um, walking around pretending they're alpha males or you know exuding alpha maleness and hitting on women and they have this really you know complex and and quite obscure vocabulary for you know basically walking up and talking to women or groups of people or whatever. So it seemed there was a kind of similarity between cyberpunks and the way that they use jargon to, to sort of exude a kind of geek chic and, uh, and the, the pickup artists and the way they use language. So I don't know. I mean, it, the, most of the story kind of grows out of that kind of a comparison, I guess. I mean, this is sort of like cyberpunk meets the pickup artists or something. Um, yeah. So was it, was which, it, which, I was going to say, yeah. was it an easy one for you to write, God? Um, it was easy to draft. It was hard <laughs> to edit into shape because 
Because once you start, you know, reading about these guys, they just, it's such a weird little underworld of, you know, there's, I mean, there's people paying to go to these workshops. They have such a crazy vocabulary. And I mean, a lot of the vocabulary in my story is not mine, in fact. Like, there's a couple of, of concepts they use in the story that I made up. Um, and, you know, I'm quite pleased with them. I think that's the kind of concepts these people will come up with in 10 years or something, but, um, or could come up with. But, you know, a lot of the concepts are, are theirs. I mean, already these are words that people are using, like uh, three-set or sarging. I mean, sarging is to hit on someone, to go out and look for, to go out and try to hit on women. And it's named after some guy named Sarge, I guess, um, apparently. So, um, so uh Making the story comprehensible to someone who doesn't know all this vocabulary, that was, that was kind of hard because I, I had spent a while sort of reading about it, looking it up, trying to figure out what the hell these people were talking about. And, you know, then I'd also thrown in all this crazy gadgetry and stuff. And, you know, I mean, so I, uh, it was bringing the story back to comprehensibility that took a lot of work, I think. Um, but drafting it wasn't hard at all. I mean, it's – to me, it's it's sort of like – I mean, so there's a reviewer that said something about, like, it's sort of like foundation. You know, there's a secret society of people, and they're trying to, like, save the world. And, yeah, I mean, that that's the basic underplot. That's quite simple. Uh, so that kind of just poured out of me. Was, but, there any, yeah. was there any real-world research going on there with yourself? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. If there was, um, will you invite me? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think I went to the point of, you know, I mean, I bought books. That's about the only thing I did in the real world. Um, I was, I watched I was video. you know, dating again for the first time in, in a while. Uh, but I don't think that really counts as research. And I wasn't doing any pickup artist stuff uh just 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 being myself you know you're talking about looking at the cyberpunk and everything like that god where because i love your work you know massive fan of your work but i haven't got a clue where i would put you in a you know in a genre you know what would you class yourself as uh science fiction <laughs> just I, I don't i yeah, I would just say science fiction. Just with you, you know, it's like, like you say, there's a lot of your stuff there is is dark, dark stuff, you know? So I'm just kind of thinking, and I'm not saying like horror to that point, but just in the kind of genre of science fiction, is there a special little niche for you? Or are you just quite happy with the science fiction label? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty happy with science fiction. I, I think, I mean, you know, looking at cyberpunk, I mean, my theory about cyberpunk is that it was a kind of useful... Um, literary persona for a group of young writers to sort of bust into science fiction. They were, you know, they were competing with, you know, people like Kim Stanley Robinson's vision of science fiction or, you know, other writers that were really big at the time. And they were sort of trying to carve out their own niche and they invented a niche by, you know, you know, that idea of cyberpunk. And, you know, I'm not saying there wasn't a sort of style involved or anything, but, you know, there were precedents and, and it, it wasn't a sort of completely something that just, burst out of a vacuum. Um, so, I mean, um, I, I, when I think about cyberpunk, I, I, when I think about cyberpunk, I think it's much, what's very interesting about cyberpunk was the sort of marketable marketability of that, that, uh, you know, subgenre. Um, as far as the stuff I'm writing, I'm not particularly sure. I mean, I haven't really sort of thought about subgenre so much, and I'm not sure that that's really, a a very viable way of doing SF anymore. I mean, I think it might be a sort of authorial persona. Um, but, you know, then, I mean, I, I'd like to think that there's a sort of emerging subgenre of 
you know, more global SF stuff that's more concerned with environment, um, stuff that's more concerned with uh, political um, issues. Um, specifically, I mean, international politics and um, sort of uh, globalization, like uh, neoliberal globalization, that kind of stuff. Um, I, I would like to think that the work I'm um, the, the work I'm putting out is sort of often relating to that kind of stuff in the way that, uh, I mean, you know, Paolo Bacigalupi is, is definitely working in that area as one example. And I think there's other writers that are going into that area too. Um, but I don't think it's actually a genre and maybe, you know, 30 or 40 years from now, if anyone's still looking back, they might sort of say, Oh, there was this kind of emergent thing at the time, but I, I don't think we're really classifying that as a genre now. Because I, I think everyone's kind of tired of punks, you know. I mean, like um, it's now everyone's talking about steampunk, and there's going to be like uh, we, when when I was in Seattle, you know, at Clarion West, we were making jokes about like jazz punk and fairy punk, and <laughs> I mean, there's only so many punks the market can can uh, can really sustain, you know. So I I don't know. I I, I don't really think that there is a, a subgenre that my work really fits into. But you know, I'd be curious what other people have to say about that, really, because. I'm not particularly concerned about it, so I haven't thought about it all that much. Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't worry, sir. Tell you what, then, God, where about this story that we've we've gotten out to to play? Mm-hmm. You, you, when when I do send you an email and say, God, is there a chance I can get a story? It comes back with <laughs> Tony. I've got this one, but now this one came. <laughs> this one came back with a big but, and you wanted yeah. like a whole ensemble to make this one like a fully round fledged daily audio production, and we've got JJ Campanella, which is I hooked you and JJ up to get it done. How did that uh-huh. work for you? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, I'm not sure that I've heard the final version, actually. You know, I've heard a version, and it sounded pretty good. I was pretty happy with it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was a very interesting kind of process because, you know, it was, I didn't want to change the story, but I thought, well, why don't we just sort of add a sort of meta-narrative to it? Uh, and that sort of necessitated, you know, other people playing characters and and uh i i don't know i think it, it i don't know if it enriches the story or not i'd i'd be again i'd be interested in uh what listeners think about that you know well, um hopefully uh, some will, will get people on the forums to have a little discussion as well are you writing anything at the moment then gord are you scri- busy scribbling away uh well um let's see that's a good question. Uh, I have, I'm always working on a few different things right now. Um, well, right now it's midterm exam week. Uh, but, uh, but I've, I've kind of been getting some work out of the way. I, I do have a story based on, um, Korean, uh, Korean history. There's this, this prince whose, uh, whose father had to ha- basically had to put him in a rice chest in the middle of summer and let him die for eight days. Uh, I mean, he died after eight days and there's this sort of Korean historical, it's it's a real event in Korean history, and uh, I do have a story I'm working on about that, which is not very science fictional and not very much like anything else that I was saying earlier. Um, but yeah, and then I've got a couple of longer things I'm trying to carve out the time to write. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm always working on stuff. Hey, that's fantastic news. God, you're the star. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you again for letting me do this story. Well, thank you for putting this story out to the world. I'm, I appreciate it, and uh, and I uh, I am proud to be on the Starship Sofa. Thank you. Ah, God, you're a star. Thank you. Listen, look after yourself. Uh-huh. You have a good one. Take care. Bye-bye. 
you know, this story, like I say, is narrated by JJ Campanella. Oh, Jim put it together. I mean, what a great job Jim's done. But I'll give you a little list of the characters. JJ Campanella's in there as organic. Then Gord's in there as well. Then we have Mrs. Campanella. Lisa is in there as a sexy saleswoman. Then we've got Tina Connolly that is narrating, Singe Gupta and John Smalley. So this is a full cast and I'm so proud of Jim to get that sorted out. Jim, thank you so much. And thank you everyone who's been in this and who's narrating this story. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present Sarging Rasmussen, a report by Organic, by Gord Seller. <sighs> okay, Hal, wake up. Welcome home, Jason. Yeah, thanks. Open Gmail, wall-sized window, track my eye. Ah, hey, cool. Select Cassie, open video mail. Hey, Jason. So you'll never guess what just happened. Oh, I know you were busy, so I was down at the Green Collective talking with some of the girls there. And guess who I met? Hey, Jason. How are you? Got Kochu syndrome yet, you prick? I hope your thing falls off. I'm so glad I ran into her. I don't know what's wrong with you. We've better things to do than waste our time on a jerk like you. Out there the coral reefs are dying, the lumber companies are cutting everything down, and, and all you can think about is hooking up. I feel sorry for you. Don't bother me again, Jason. Bye-bye, jerk-off. <sighs> Hal, open up EPUA board. Okay, now, search, quote, XHB sabotage stalking tips. Huh? What's that sticky? Sergeant Rasmussen? Why is a damn Sarge report stickied? Open up Sergeant Rasmussen. Ah, Organic's latest post? Should be good. Okay, play embedded audio. I don't, Hunter screamed, tears trailing down his cheeks, lit by the trendy piezoelectric floor-powered club lights, pulsing to the fashionable heart-attack thump of melee beat techno. I let Bagheera amog me and fuck it all up. I don't got shit. I managed to fight my urge to start calling him by his real name, Wilfred Chan, but I made the mistake of reasoning with him. What? Listen, you do. You got game. Trust me, I've seen your work, Hunter. Ever since you first came to Den Haag, I watched you amog Marco Rexchild and Cobro Park and Elmira into signing that Pacific RI treaty, all in three hours. You even banged that hot little attaché from the IECWP before the committee went into session. Oh, shit, man. You got so much game, you're a legend. Game 1.0, Game 2.0. New guys dream of being like you. What are you crying about? A smile almost cracked his face in half as he remembered bonking that secretary. But then reality fluttered back, slamming his frown back into place. He'd been amogged, knocked right out of his synthetic alpha male mind frame, 
reduced to inaudible mumbling. Once again, a low status, never get laid, can't say the world loser. The club noise swallowed his broken little voice. But his words flashed boldly across my contact lenses. What about the reefs? The IPBR display in the corner of my right lens showed his body temp running high, though so was everyone's in that place. But his pulse rate and respiration were all in the red. Then Muggle, Creative Commons, kicked in, blaring terse, blood-red warnings across my contacts. Hostile. Unbalanced. Tox? You can't always trust software to tell you the truth you're trying to ignore hardest. The Muggle, Creative Commons, app was one of the finest tools in the Game 2.0 kit. It told you which chicks really just wanted to be left alone, and when a suit had been rubbed the wrong way beyond the point of no broability. For analyzing people you didn't know, possible targets, it was the most kick-ass app around, like a wingman who was never scared to reality slap you upside the neocortex. But Hunter had been my mentor once. I felt a stab of guilt about what I'd have to do to him. My doubts swirled momentarily and my contacts picked that up. My system was monitoring me too and flashed me emphatically. Totally fucking hostile, dude. A moment later came the default addendum built in to urge restraint. Sorry. I embraced my guilt for a second. I figured it kept me human. And then I shoved it aside. Compassion for fuck-ups and flakes is what crippled the green movement so badly that Game 2.0 became necessary. Besides, I've worked too hard to burn off the residuals of my own average, frustrated, environmentalist, crusader mentality. I didn't have time to be the AFEC anymore. There were protocols for handling backslides like this. Listen, man, I said, setting my hand on his shoulder. And then I felt it right through the fine, black, Italian, arachno-silk. Hunter was shivering, almost shaking. What the fuck are you on? I asked, snatching his peacocky mirror specs from his face and taking a good look at his surgically Eurasianized eyes. Dilated pupils stared back wetly at me, the left one huge and the right still dilating. Hunter cringed from the sudden brightness. He ignored my question and exhaled slowly brain hemorrhage. It had to be. The pupils. Textbook images flooded back to me from my pre-med bio courses before I'd fled into a pharmacy program. Fuck. For what? A couple... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Full of fucking coral reefs that were doomed anyway, because Diaz and Abril and Rodriguez were playing Let's Compare Dicks with the Asian again. Always with the drama, Hunter was... And now he was probably going to end up brain damaged, if not dead on the spot. We had to get that shit out of his system fast. My winger, Creative Commons, app, had already alerted the other guys. Like, fuck. He stared at me, grunted my name, and then, with a sudden jolt, he slapped himself in the face and started howling. Nothing but vowels and slobber. Nobody had noticed, lucky for us. By then... Homeboyostasis and Biosphere had shown up on either side of Hunter and looped their arms through his. They hauled him out of the place with all the efficiency of professional bouncers, with me at their side. Get him to a DTC or he's fucked for sure, I hollered once we were in the hallway, away from the pounding beat, wondering if there even was a detox center close enough to save his ass. Maybe it's too late already. If not, when he wakes up, tell him he did his best and buy him some time in a vippy tank, okay? I'm going to go back in and shake close this treaty if it takes both my front teeth and one of my balls. By then, they'd stuffed him into a cab and piled in after him. Sure thing, organic, Biosphere said to me with a nod while homeboy Ostasis shouted into his cell phone and fumbled with the taxi's emergency medikit. Before the cab had even pulled away, I was back in the hallway, making my way back into the noise strutting already. If there was one thing that would get me through the next two hours, it was inner game. And thank fuck my inner game was deep as the Mariana Trench, and solid as titanium steel, or the sight of Hunter losing his shit would have done me in. Fuck S-closing, I thought to myself. Fuck handshakes. I'm gonna T-close, I told myself. I'm gonna fucking treaty-close this deal, I repeated. I took a deep breath as I reached the dance floor. Finally, I caught sight of Gilberto over by the bar, laughing as he talked to a tall, skinny black guy. I didn't quite recognize him, but I was pretty sure he was on some human rights, landmines, homeless children, immunization, and whatever the fuck committee we usually didn't have to game. And Sigrid Rasmussen, a slightly chunky middle-aged blonde, HB6 if I were pressed to rank her sexually because I don't like big girls and because of her age, who is the assistant secretary of the task force for the deacidification of the world's oceans, who was, everyone agreed, playing a little too friendly with the WTO-run oversight council and needed to be reminded that whatever profit motive mattered now would mean nothing once the reefs were all toast. The world's reefs. Not the world, just the world's reefs, I told myself. We could always engineer something artificial if we had to, I reassured myself dubiously. You can do this. Then I kicked myself with the three-second rule. Never wait more than three seconds to approach a person, or else you'll overthink it. 
I thought of Mother Earth for a moment and then waded into the pulsating crowd. Not for the first time, I wish these WTO-UN dickheads would start acting their age and hang out someplace besides nightclubs. Hey, how you doing tonight, Jason? Yeah, me too. You know, statistics show that 96% of guys spend at least 69% of their time thinking about how to meet hot women like me. According to your Google memberships log, you've recently deregistered from sexbook.com, hotcheapdates.net, and sexualhealing.or.jp, but you're still an active member of several dating and casual sex websites. I know the dating scene is a jungle, even when you've studied and upgraded to game 2.0. It's hard to keep abreast of all the breakthroughs. That's why I'm here now. Not just to let you look at a hot girl like me, but also to invite you personally, Jason, to come to the 10th Annual World PUA Convention, which is being held in Brisbane this August 10th through 15th. Wouldn't you like to have all the latest breakthroughs laid out for you? Looking forward to seeing you. This has been brought to you by Google Ads. Bookmark. Add to agenda. Background search. Plane tickets. We started out as far from idealists, of course, as my teacher Praxis said when he met me. Environmentalists? Ha. You know who gets laid less than a green radical? Nobody, I said, wishing I'd mentioned my day job as a lab tech instead of how I spent my weekends. It was true, though. Women had seen fit to chain themselves to trees beside me and join me in hijacking oil tankers on highways and march arm-in-arm with me in the streets of a dozen countries by my side. But I'd gotten precisely one girl out of a bra in all my life, and that had lasted just five weeks. 37 days, to be precise, and that had been four years before. Exactly, Praxis said with a sneer. Nobody. But we're going to change all that. You're gonna, he said on day one. That was back in the days when fellows like Praxis were called MPUAs. Guys like him made a living running boot camps for AFCs, the average frustrated chumps. Guys who didn't know how to talk to women and were willing to spend a thousand bucks for a weekend of being coached on how to talk to women. Guys like me. Mostly they learned about being forced to go sarging, approaching thousands of women in a row until they stopped pissing themselves with fear and grew a backbone. And Praxis was right. During that weekend, he changed my life. Or, well, really, I did. He'd taken me and the other AFCs, a hardware engineer who called himself axiomatic, a lonely high school teacher we dubbed homework, a recently divorced cop called Slammer, and some Japanese poet or something, 
and baptized us by fire. We went out sarging all weekend, chatting up hot women in bars and bookstores and coffee shops, coming on to them and hassling them, teasing, rubbing shoulders, and even scoring some phone numbers. That weekend was the first time I ever wore leather. Tight leather. Peacocky leather. Praxis taught us routines, taught us cocky funny, taught us rules of thumb and dozens of techniques, and by the end of it, every one of us had learned the secret. There wasn't one. Getting a woman's phone number, or anything else for that matter, didn't require magic or an 11-inch cock or perfect white teeth. All it took was asking for it in the right way once she was ready to give it. Once you'd helped her become ready. Pretty soon we were having the time of our lives with the kind of babes who terrified us just months before. I was no longer Andrew Dalton. I'd become organic, and now I was swimming in women. Tall women, short women, dark and pale, funny and serious, wild and schoolmarmish alike. I tasted every flavor there was. I'd learned techniques for getting them to come home with me in less than 30 minutes of first contact, for engineering a threesome, for getting them to give me a sponge bath dressed in nurse uniforms while speaking in fake Polish. Look, everyone has his kinks, and whoever claims otherwise is lying. For the first time in my life, I was getting laid like a truckload of linoleum, and it was the part of me that was really, really enjoying all that sex that spoke first when Katana had laid out his plan. That was the part of me that had stopped caring about how many trees got cut down at Cleoquat Sound and didn't give a shit about the coral reefs and strip mining in the Northwest Territories. They say that a sense of impending death makes people have more sex. That's a mammalian instinct. Well... The first year the ice caps melted completely in the summer, I made that work for me and worked out my own mammalian panic all at once. From there, I hadn't looked back, not once, at the dying earth. Not till that day. And it hurt to look again at what I'd once cared about, which I think is why I yelped, It's fucking crazy, Katana. The tools we have, they're for pickup, for getting laid, not for saving the world. Yeah, man, Biosphere said, nodding his head. What do you want to do, seduce the sun and shining less brightly? Sarge lumberjacks? Toss a few negs at megacorporations and hope they go sweet on us? Biosphere laughed at the absurdity of it. We all did. You're not listening, bros, Katana said, his hands parallel in front of him like some kind of loony Japanese evangelical minister. His eyes shone with this kind of insane holy fire light. You can't seduce the sun. You don't need to. The environment, the ecology, it's people. I've been reading Dawkins and Page. We all groaned. And there's something to this extended phenotype thing, Katana went on. The world is what we make it, what governments decide, how giant companies decide to behave. But governments and companies, what are they? People. Biosphere said. They're just people. And so they can be seduced. Wrong, said Katana, flicking at the wall with his keychain remote. The smart wall flickered, and images from satellite flooded it at high speed, corporate logos and national flags flashing superimposed onto creeping desertifications, megastorms, and black smoke flashes of brief, vicious water wars. 
they're persons, legally and functionally. They're the ultimate AMOGs, and they can be AMOGed too. Someone who hadn't known us would have taken one look around the room at us in our freaky, peacocky clothing. Homeboy Ostasis's purple fur vest, my depilated scalp, Biosphere's animated magic eight-ball t-shirt cycling through its advice. No way. Yes way. Maybe. Go fuck yourself. And declared Katana's attempt to sway us a complete hopeless failure. Goes to show what total strangers know about anything. This advertisement has been approved by Google Ads for single male Google users like you. Ha ha ha. Terry, I'll bet you are tired of paying too much for your weapon. You're darn tootin' I am. I'm tired of spending a hundred bucks a month for crappy amateur porno videos. But is there a better way? There sure is. Haven't you heard about Porngregator? .co.ck, it's the newest best thing in XXX web content, and at a low cost of only... Skip. Block. I've already joined that site. Block request approved by Google Ads. Launching replacement ad. Hello there. I know you're a lot like me. A guy looking to get a leg up. Or, if you are lucky, maybe two legs up at once. Ha ha ha! You got game, of course, but everyone can use an edge. And that's why me and my team of organic chemists here at Natural Gasm Labs in Frankfurt have spent the last two years developing a foolproof body odor that goes on easy and keeps on working all night long. You see, women are attracted to men with a radically different immune system from their own. When a hot babe, eight or nine or ten, walks away from you, it's not your looks, it's not your clothes, it might not even be a flaw in your game. If your immune systems are too similar, she can't help it. There's no way for a woman to be attracted to a man with an immune system like her own. Until now, thanks to this handsome Shrine Kraus. And 5,000 brothers we've cloned for him. Yeah, we have developed a body odor with a signature unlike any other human being. When they get a whiff of your scent, they'll go as wild for you as hogs do for slops. Good, yeah? Pause. Out of hell with it. Bookmark. This has been brought to you by Google Ads. At first, we figured that swaying the head of a WTO-UN committee to see things your way might be a little different from scoring a phone number off the hottest chick in a bar. But in the end, sarging is sarging. It's all the same. And all the skills are transferable. Peacocking, for example. As I walked up to Gilberto, the secretary to the head of the Committee for Reduction Reef Fishery, I held my chest out, the way a quarterback stands when he walks past a street fight. I strutted slightly, comfortable in my skin, in this bar, comfortable around Gilberto. 
Clubs and clubbers didn't scare me anymore, despite all the years of nights that I spent wanking at home alone while Gilberto was dancing his ass off as he climbed the ranking ladder of the youngest WTO-UN hierarchy pyramid ever. None of that mattered. I was confident. My suit was Libyan. Not that you'd ever know. Most people can't tell it from the Italian stuff. The difference, my friend, is price. The slight untidiness of my hair was as carefully engineered as the piezoelectric bricking system under the floor that powered the lights and audio in that eco-club. When I spoke, my voice was a half-octave lower than it had been for most of my adult life. My smile was natural, of course. Practice anything in the mirror enough, and it becomes natural. And yeah, I'll admit, there was a gentle cloud of pseudo-pheromones surrounding me, telegraphing virility by advertising much higher levels of testosterone than any real healthy human male could possibly possess. Gilberto, I said with a serious professional smile, and then I noticed Bagheera, fucking Bagheera. She was headed straight for us, a look in her eye that was straight out of a nature documentary, a panther about to sink her teeth into an antelope's neck. A beginner EPUA would have looked around frantically, breaking the spell I'd begun, even by then to cast over Gilberto. But my wingmen were well-trained, and I let them do their jobs. Bagheera was closing fast as I shook Gilberto's hand, ignoring his who-the-fuck-are-you look. My grip was firm, but not much firmer than his, and shifted my posture slightly to match his own. Good work today, I said. We'd all seen it on the WTO-UN net feed. Gilberto slapping down a conservation measures offshoring initiative put forward by the G-14. Standard crap. Have someone else clean up their air and trade their measures for the right to keep shitting in the sky and ocean. After verbally bitch-slapping the American rep for 20 minutes straight, Gilberto had gotten a standing ovation and dared to go out in public the same night. I let my smile drop ever so slightly and then matched Gilberto's when he responded with a grin. My timing, of course, was perfect. I'd trained this particular skill for weeks. His response was immediate, a glow in his eyes and a sudden display of comfort. Next I spoke just a little too quietly. When he leaned forward, I knew I had him. Emogs don't lean forward. They say, pardon me, or say what. The other guy can repeat himself louder or reposition himself. But I stepped closer to him, setting my hand on his back in the way that buddies do, turning my back to Bagheera as she approached. That would buy a few seconds. I wish we had more guys like you in the trenches, I said. Yeah, that's right, my eyes said. I'm from upstairs. Suddenly my easy magnanimity held a different meaning for him. It flashed in Gilberto's eyes. Maybe, just maybe, I was the real alpha male of the group. Gilberto nodded happily, thanked me, and picked up his drink. He glanced into the glass as he sipped it, his body screaming a single message. Whoa, upstairs. That was when I caught sight of Antigen and his wing babe, Greenfire, leaning Bagheera across the room and away, cordial and professional as all get-out. Not for the first time, I thanked God for Greenfire, she was an insider chick who'd ended up on our boards one night by chance after being seduced by antigen. She decided she liked how we were working the WTOUN. 
The only rational approach to this bloody organization I've ever heard of was how she put it, according to Antigen, and teamed up with us. I turned to the African, and his name flashed across my specs. Echuo. Mr. Echuo, I said, shaking his hand firmly, my smile exuding confidence, and have we met before? We hadn't. I've never had any reason to talk to someone in human rights, but there was a faint glimmer of do I know you on his face, one confirmed by my muggle, Creative Commons, software, and I wasn't about to help him out. The game was on, and I was well on my way to broing these fuckers. Soon, I'd be able to start working my real target. Everyone had to start somewhere, and I started with Hunter in a club called Il Baro Spaziarata in Sydney. I'd paid 1500 Canuck bucks to fly down there and another 1500 in Canadian, because Aussie money was crashing then, to do a boot camp with the best, because back then, that was what Hunter was, the best of the MPUAs. He was an MPUA 2.0, a master of the older pickup arts, a pioneer in the newer technology-fueled 2.0 subscene. I'll never forget the first time I went sarging for real, post boot camp, the terminology roiling in my head, tumbling through my mind as I realized that all these words and concepts really referred to real-world things, to people. Sets, which meant groups of women, and mixed group of women and men together, had to be opened. DHV, I had to display high value. AMOG, the competitive males. Try, stupidly, the jealous girlfriend opener. Dodge the inevitable slap. This was 2016, after all, and it was beyond obsolete. Peacocking. Negs. I walked over to a triple set. HB 9.0 in a red cocktail dress. HB 2, punky in a plaid skirt and leather vest over her blouse. HB 7.0, white trash with a nose ring and an animated tramp stamp dancing on the small of her back. I followed the three-second rule, approaching the set immediately and engaging HB 7.0, who was not my target, as I worked the social game a little. I ignored HB 9.0 persistently. They smiled at me like a little boy who had picked and bought him ditch flowers, and HB 2 punky ruffled my hair with a smirk. Are you trying to pick one of us up, they said, glancing meaningfully at HB 9.0. They knew what I was doing, understood that the girl... I ignored was my target. They knew. I wasn't little. I was almost six feet tall. And if my body was a bit slim, I wasn't exactly skinny. I was dressed in a long black jacket and fake gem-encrusted shades. Later, I realized they looked like Elton John's. But that night, I thought I was peacocking. And I thought I'd look cool and had been on top of things. But they'd read me like a trashy sex blog. Do you want me to? I tried with my winning smile. When caught, play it cocky funny. Okay, I said to myself. And then it happened. I wondered, am I showing too much tooth? High school yearbook pictures flooded my mind. Happy birthday videos. Teenage rants on YouTube in 2008 that I made after my mother screwed up my hair and all the nasty comments about my teeth. Hours of sitting in a chair when I was 26 getting all that dental work done. Lasering in white. I wavered. It showed. My smile imploded, lips twisting together. 
Their eyes register the change. I saw myself reflected in their bedroomy eyes, and between the long lashes and the lovely lids, what stared back at me was chump, 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 chump. They had six eyes between them, after all. H.B. Punky started laughing first, and then H.B. 9.0 spun on one stiletto heel, her arm around H.B. 7.0's shoulder. Hunter was right there beside me, and he said, Dude, that's like nothing, dude. They have issues. You connected at first. Totally. No big deal. Take it in stride. Just takes practice, bro. But all night long, I saw them glancing at me, grinning among themselves. When we took off for another club, one without them around, I noticed other girls looking at me the same way before I even talked to them. Failure. It was just like my life before boot camp. A series of failures of women laughing at me. It sucked. I sucked. Dude, I said to Hunter at the front door of the second club. I don't think there's much point, man. I just... And then he slapped me. He just fucking slapped me right across the face. Out of nowhere. And I fell on the ground. Right there on the sidewalk. I fell down. Not because he'd hit me so hard, but because I hadn't any idea it was coming. I was just so shocked. Surprised, huh? Hunter shouted. Didn't expect life to bitch slap you right in the face, huh? I sat up, hand on my cheek. Life didn't slap me, Hunter. You did. I could feel the burning hampered on my face. Shut up, he commanded. And listen. Then he reached down, grabbed my free hand, and helped me to my feet. Life is like that. Life will smack you at any moment. No warning, no announcement. That's how life works. It bitch slaps you with everything that matters. A chance at pussy, random senseless danger, a job opportunity you never knew you wanted, and finally it bitch slaps you with death. I stared at him with widened eyes in his purple leather Aussie cowboy hat. He was turning unprovoked assault into a life lesson a parable. And finally I was starting to get it. When life bitch slaps you, he said, and I realized the muscles in his arms were tensing again, you need to be paying fucking attention. And then he threw his fist at me. My hand had come up without my thinking about it, but it was only when I looked that I realized I'd blocked his punch. My fingers were closed around his fist, and he was smiling like a maniac. Organic, he said, using the pseudonym I'd written on my Hello, My Name Is sticker back at boot camp orientation, and which had become my handle online of the PUA wiki boards. Buddy, you learn quick. You're one of us, just in larval form. He'll be rocking in no time, bro. It was a routine, straight out of some boot camp trainer guidebook. The routine was designed for the most promising recruit when his courage failed. Funny thing was, it turned out to be true. I was one of them. And a few months later, I'd become a real PUA. I'd gotten more numbers in three months than I had in all the years before. I'd slept with five different girls, two of them together. The techniques that the MPUAs had refined were stunningly powerful. They turned me from Geeko Ignominus to a Geek Adonis, or at least that's what I saw reflected in women's eyes. Now every PUA loses his powers occasionally, 
There was a night in Barcelona when every chick in the bar looked straight through me. Routines and moves that had worked in a thousand other bars all over the world failed me inexplicably that night. There was a night at Loco in Amsterdam when I found myself suddenly in my old rut, begging for approval from a trio of HB 9.5s to 10s. Suddenly I was back to being that gawky, balding geek that everyone else had forgotten, and I got shot down so hard I felt I'd never sarge again. But mostly, I was like wine or whiskey. I just got better and better with time. As I mastered the game, I diversified. I picked up chicks at political protests and municipal libraries. I got laid in the bathroom of a Starbucks in Cairo with an HB9 that I'd just met minutes before in line with just a few words of XNLP whispered into her ear. Blonde. I still remember the scent of her vegan backpacker shampoo. It was like I'd woken from a long, deep sleep into a world absolutely cramped with opportunities. Ice cream shops, public parks, blues concerts, pet stores, divorce lawyers' office waiting rooms. At a freaking dental clinic, my face still numb from the nerve block. It changed me. Well, of course it did. Power always changes people. It transformed my awareness of what human beings are. Because once you start sarging, you never lose sight of that. We're mammals. No matter how much fancy, clever neocortex you slather onto our brains, we're animals. Sure, we talk, we dance, we sing, and we build rockets and satellites and the internet, but we're still animals with animal instincts. Man, reading Darwin after you learn pickup is a totally different thing than reading it when you're an average frustrated chump. AFCs see evolution and sexual reproduction as a system they're excluded from, hopelessly. But PUAs, they're hackers working the system, kludging the code, DHV, manage expectations, isolate your target. It's a dance of evolution. It's not just a game, it's the game. The machinery of evolution in life. It's the reason we have these fancy neocortexes that let us talk and engineer airplanes and perform brain surgery. It's a minimalistic obstacle race with time, death, and destiny as moving goalposts. Smart people had been using game theory to discuss tons of stuff, including sexual reproduction itself, but they never dared to say what those first MPUAs discovered, that we humans, too, were locked into a game that few of us understood, a game that could be learned. It could be mastered and gained. Not that sleeping with all those women ever filled the hole inside most of us, of course. And we found ourselves wondering what in the world could fill that hole. It turned out that Katana's breakdown was the cold front that set in motion the perfect storm. Guys who had learned to social engineer the way we had, who could sell ice to an Eskimo village, who could talk a nun out of all her habits. What could we do when we finally found ourselves an overriding purpose? We knew we could change the world. That, if we decided to, we could do more than rock on the fiddle and screw ourselves silly as Mother Earth burned to cinders all around us. We could use pickup to save the Earth. And Bagheera and the other eco-fems knew it too. And they weren't about to let it happen without a fight. Bro, 
bro, what do you know? Man, last night I was sergeant with my bros, and I was macking on this fine honey potty HB11 when wax mac. What's this? My headgear goes paylock on me. Now I know you all know what I'm talking about, and you know what I said. What? What good's it to me if Muggle and Winger and Tamgasm are all Creative Commons software when the manufacturers, who shall remain nameless, yo, have locked your headgear tight tight as a Vietnamese schoolgirl's Yo, taint no good at all. That's why y'all need to join our revolution, yo. Chances are, you got some bad hacking skills. Cause there's a lot of us PUAs that are hardcore nerds, but you ain't using those skills for good. Well, this is your chance to make a difference, bros. We want you to contribute code to a new open source Creative Commons OS for most headgear on the market. Stop. Block double length ads. Google Ads would like to apologize for the poor fit of advertisements for your interests. Google is listening and updating your ad response profile. Google would like to thank you for your understanding. Yeah, whatever. Broing is one of those concepts that never existed in Game 1.0, since that was all about picking up women. Things didn't change till it became just as important to be able to finesse relationships with men. There are seven steps to the algorithm that underlies the broing process, and they spell out a neat little acronym you can use as a mnemonic. B-A-S-T-A-R-D. As I broed Gilberto and Echuo, I worked through all seven steps. Be broable. That was easy, since I was already peacocked for the environment in my suit, with killer posture and my now-perfect teeth, and on top of that, my head was temporarily rewired by the dose of Peacock, Creative Commons. My favorite PUA-designed de-inhibitant, Wonder Farm, pulsing through my veins. I was, for the moment, the kind of man that men wanted to have as a bro. I was broable. Next was assess networks and infiltrate. This was the thing I'd struggled with the hardest, for some reason. I've never figured out if I have some vaguely sub-autism spectrum disorder or just an extra thick skull, but I'd always struggle to figure out group hierarchies. I was raised to consider people as equals, but the truth is, humans aren't. They never are. Someone's always a little bit cooler or sexier or funnier than you are, and someone's always less than you are, too. There's always disparity. And once I'd realized that and started looking, there it was everywhere. Sometimes it wasn't obvious, but you could always figure it out. In the group at the bar, Gilberto was the AMOG, Echuo second, and Rasmussen was at the bottom, even though Rasmussen was, technically speaking, more important than both of them put together. That didn't matter at the bar. Back in the jungle, this is the typical way 2M1F sets shape up. I'd already sussed out the triangle, and docked with the AMOG Gilberto. So I moved on to step three, which is, status is for sharing. Turning a fellow human being into an ally is a subtly different process from rendering a woman receptive to sexual advances. When you're sergeant women, you have to display high value in order to make her see you as worth pursuing, 
but also to dispel the feeling that you're pursuing them. That's even more the case with MM or desexualized MF interactions. In those cases, only total losers pursue. If you're DHVing to a Paul and he or she starts reacting like a Chiquita in a tube skirt, you're almost always talking to the wrong person. With my three set, DHVing was easy. Besides all the status I was exuding, thanks to the dose of Peacock, Creative Commons, I'd just taken, I knew Gilberto and Rasmussen's work and track record inside out. My more guys like you in the trenches line first set off that faint sense among them that I was someone, someone important enough that they had better not ask my name in case they were supposed to know already. Four to five times, that hesitation keeps the set guessing till the close. And this time it worked. Rasmussen was too busy trying to figure out why I was ignoring her, and Ichuo wasn't in his element. He took me for some kind of eco-pal. So Gilberto was my only risk factor, and he already warmed to me the second I touched his shoulder. So why do you think Chen and Silver are so against the reef treaty, I asked, forcing myself not to smile as Gilberto's eyes widened. Silver, what do you mean? He promised us a vote. I smiled, raised an eyebrow, and said, Publicly. Rasmussen leaned forward, about to ask me who the hell I was, but Gilberto was hooked, and it's a rare woman who'll cut off the current Amog when he has that look in his eyes. Gilberto leaned closer to me and shouted above the music, Is there something I should know? The others in the group leaned forward too, but I kept my back straight. Never lean in to be heard. The Amog always speaks louder instead. Recent meetings. Chan and Silver talking late at night. Gilberto's eyes widened and he pulled me aside as Rasmussen was distracted enough to forget the question of who I was working for and whipped out her Macberry to mob text her Saffers. I watched her and Echuo out of the corner of my eye. The African just sipped his drink watching them respond to the sudden crisis as Gilberto asked me, Are you sure they're talking a pullout? We've been working on this reef treaty for over a year now and... Well, you know Silver, I said moving from step four, talk, shop, then stop, to step five, activate instincts. Gilberto and me, we weren't standing in a club, drowning in lights, shouting to be heard over music. Not anymore. Suddenly, we were standing on the savannah, stone tools in our hands, and I was pointing over the next hill at the place where the enemy lived, pointing at them, someone else whom I was framing as an enemy, which made us an us in a very caveman sense. Grunt, grunt. Usually, it wasn't quite that simple, of course, but Gilberto was an idealist, an uncommon disease in his eco-pal biz, especially among the WTOUN crowd, the guys who weren't scared of getting rich while saving the world, those free of the suspicion that wealth quietly corrupted their successes somehow, went into internal corporate reform and green research, and they didn't hang out in places like this. I know, I've broed some of them too. Think cigars and cognac and strippers and conversations about design and alt-fuel so long as you can feel your hair turning gray.
I saw it happening in Gilberto's head, gears turning, teeth locking and unlocking, and clank. Suddenly, I'm the bearer of bad news. I was the nettle that got under his jockstrap, the messenger he wants to kill. Though he won't, because what if I am from upstairs? It's only natural, that negative reaction. His mental frame of reference was that he'd been working for a year on this fucking deal when suddenly I told him it's got the life expectancy of a beluga whale washed ten miles inland by a tsunami. His expression harshened and he gripped my arm, a little burst of aggression bubbling over. What am I supposed to do now? he growled. It's too late, isn't it? Why are you only telling me this now? This is why step six reframe the interaction follows on the heels of step five because step five can so easily go wrong human instincts are like monkeys that have grown up trapped in little cages when you wake them up and let them out they turn highly unpredictable sometimes they slip on a tux and do a dance routine and sometimes they sling their shit in your face the cognitive dissonance was clear on gilberto's face my contact lenses IPBR confirmed it. Pulse 93 BPM, body temp slightly elevated, respiration shallow. Not surprising. Alphas don't like surprises or being out of the loop. And he was used to being an alpha. When Gilberto got mad, he flung his shit and bashed heads with verbal rocks. He was the type to get his pick of mates and sleeping spots. But I was maybe from upstairs so this was potentially dangerous. So he mapped PER, prior experiential references, onto me. Distant daddy issues, I guessed. So many of us ego-freak types, Pauls and otherwise, have daddy issues. Now the stage was set for me to steal the frame. I had to make him important, turn his feelings inside out, let him feel like it was me depending on him and me being hurt by his failure instead of the other way around. Rasmussen came in just in time. She'd finished texting and making her phone calls and suddenly hurried back over to us at exactly the moment when Gilberto was about to run Amog on me. Of course, her presence was probably part of what drove him to it. She came on tiptoes, straining to hear our voices. Perfect. Stealing a frame requires a shock to the system. Just like when Hunter slapped me across the face. Nobody lets his or her frame get stolen without a sudden shock that destabilizes all those underlying assumptions. Of course, I couldn't slap Gilberto or Rasmussen. If I did that, I'd be fucked. It's okay, I told them. But you need to know that we're counting on you. We can't recover unless you pull through for us, I added, looking away from Gilberto and toward Rasmussen. She was going to save the day. She was the one we needed. Sigrid Rasmussen, you're my only hope. Gilberto registered, at least on some level, that he'd been amogged, but he was too stunned to process it quickly enough to properly challenge me. His own hesitation tripped him up, and I talked fast so that it would last. As long as he was listening, he'd be off balance, and if he was off balance for more than three seconds, he'd start thinking. And thinking is the bane of the would-be amog. I was ready for step seven. Deal with the target. When I noticed them, 
two young white women in business attire, one with her hair in a blunt cut, like millionaire soccer mom, and the other looking like a business exec with her hair in classy beads, neo-African style. They were only a few feet away and heading for us. I recognized them, of course. The blunt cut was Estraven, and her friend was Bamboo Grove. I felt a whiskey shot's worth of adrenaline dump into my bloodstream. Of course Bagheera wasn't alone, but if I'd known there'd be a full-on eco-fem incursion, I'd have come better armed. Estraven was almost my girl, back when her name had been Monica Dietz. Coulda, woulda, shoulda. Probably not, but I used to wonder how things would have gone if we had hooked up back then. The scene? A hippie apartment, stinking of patchouli and burnt sandalwood. One wall absolutely covered in books, and the floor was littered with dirty old beanbag chairs stuffed with hay instead of the usual comfy styropods. A faint scent of unmasked body odor hung in the air, the unmistakable sign of true believers. And then there was Monica, radiant before the pack in her Birkenstocks and Indian lehenga skirt, her hair hanging in narrow dreadlocks, and an earnest sloganed T stretched across her chest. Despite the nose rings, the sketchy teeth and hair, and all that windy rhetoric she was spouting, she was hot. The hottest girl in the place. Sitting on a beanbag chair in the back in my jeans and t-shirt, I dressed down for the occasion. I saw her through the eyes of the other guys in the room. Not that there were many guys there. Eighty percent of the world's environmental activists are women, which was one of those little facts that had led Katana to his genius insight, even though we'd soon realize that searching activists was a dummy's game. In this particular room, there were only two other men, both too awkward and uptight to hook up with any serious woman, let alone an eco-femme. Guys like I had once been. They don't want us to think about the environment. They'd rather catch a profit for now and float off into space on the almighty dollar, she growled. Then she read us a poem she'd written, which I guess was supposed to be about what we should be thinking about. I'm pretty sure she thought it was a nature poem about fish and birds and elm trees going extinct on the day she got her first period. But as she read it, I looked around and realized that I was probably the only guy in the room, maybe the only person there, who understood what the poem was really about. She was dying for a man to come and lay her, to not be some namby-pamby friend, to not woo her with his sensitivity and dedication to Gaia. She wanted a guy who would sniffle at her eco-feminist rhetoric, and instead of mumbling along, would kiss her on the mouth and fuck her up against the wall. She had itches that nobody had ever scratched. It was clear in her voice. And she kept glancing at me. Maybe she could smell it on me. The outsiderness? The lingering scent of Starbucks and unfair trade chocolate? This was only a few months after Katana had catapulted us through that quantum mental leap to Game 2.0. I was still more comfortable in nightclubs than eco-Marxist meetings and hippie lofts in North Vancouver. Not that I showed her how awkward I felt there. She'd have seen my confidence, the carefully rehearsed carefreeness of my gait, my smile, my eyes on her as she spoke. 
A few hours later, Monica and I were sitting on her balcony drinking some... Oh, fuck. I don't know what it was. Some kind of homemade apple wine or something. Pretty crappy stuff. But she was saying how it was totally sustainable. Zero footprint stuff. And I told her it wasn't bad. I touched her on the shoulder as I said, Really good, actually. Working a little old-fashioned NLP magic so she'd associate my touch with boosts and positivity and approval. Not that the NLP was totally conscious by then. It was more instinct. But she caught it. I saw a flicker in her eyes. Vague suspicion that grew a little stronger with my every move. When we were chained to a tree and chanting a few days later, I rubbed my shoulder against hers. When I asked her about how she'd become an activist and read her eye movements, she looked down, then away, the clear sign of a kinesthetic mind. Monica was one of those rare people whose inner world wasn't visual or auditory. She made her way around, going on gut feelings and intuitions. Maybe that's how she figured out what I was up to. A week after our first chat, we were curled up on my couch, pulling back from a kiss to catch our breaths, when I felt her eyes look straight into me. That's not a romantic metaphor. She was seeing into me, seeing the real me inside. That's how it felt. Now, most women love that feeling, but it freaks out us PUAs. She must have seen that, too. She asked, How are you doing it? Welcome to the PUA's worst nightmare. If she knew already that I was gaming her, then how long would it be before she figured out everything? I backslid. Old, familiar, toxic shame and fear of an AFC... AFEC flooded on me. All my careful mental hacks, positive self-affirmations, fallback routines, accumulated confidence and freedom to just be with her collapsed into terror and self-loathing. I took a breath and stared into her eyes and tried to think of what to say. Nothing. Something to say? Nothing. Mystery, I thought, with the one brain cell that had the game left in it. So instead of speaking, I touched her on the chin, and in that instant, her head tilted back, and all my doubts and uncertainties melted away. When my lips touched hers again, I felt my game surge back. In a little while, we'd be in my bed. I knew, candles burning all around us, her hemp skirt draped on the back of my chair, her belly under my palm, her dreadlocks all around her head like an angel's spiky halo. She'd give herself to me that night, I realized, and relief flooded me. Not anticipation, which was what I should have felt. Relief, because I thought I was in control. The outcome was secured. In the back of my mind, a little alarm went off. At the time, I thought it was because I was really falling for her, like seriously. There was a pang of guilt at the fact I'd met her in the process of sarging the eco-Marxist group she led. Now I think differently. The outcome is never, ever sure, and if you want it to be, you're bound to be fucking up your game somewhere, some AFC shit getting in the way. But that night, I was hazy with endorphins and giddy with fear, and some dark corner of me was eager for a little self-sabotage. She sensed my hesitation, too. She was entranced, of course, and we did sleep together that night, but she felt that weird twist in my game. 
It woke her up when the sun rose and sent her searching for a reason to doubt me. She found plenty. When I woke, she wasn't beside me, but I heard the soft hum of my computer fan and the faint bleeping sound as she opened up page after page. The E.P. Waveforums. Fuck. I rose silently, cringing. I'd left my computer on, logged on to the Game 2.0 discussion board, where my half-written report on sarging the North Vancouver Eco-Marxist Activism Cooperative was in the draft's text box. Then came terror and my involuntary gasp and her turning with eyes so hateful I felt like my balls were about to wither and fall off. Hell hath no fury like an eco-feminist, gamed. And now here she came. I'm love hawkin' 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 baby, the sexy voice proclaimed over the thumping beat, and I watched her approach, her stride confident. Challenge was issued by every step. Bring it on, growled the sway of her hips. Let's do this, her eyes telegraphed. She flashed her best, her dead meat asshole smile, narrowed her eyes, and then turned her gaze on Rasmussen. Estravan wasn't really Monica right now, just like I wasn't really Andrew Dalton when I was sergeant. I was organic, strong, powerful, the best bro a man could find, the most eligible man in sight, and I wasn't acting anymore. I was organic. And she became her role, too. Estravan had morphed into a thing of primal, visceral beauty, thinly veneered in a pantsuit and a business-casual hairdo. Just highlights of blonde and the black suggested strands of purest sunlight lost in her hair. Footsteps so confident in those Donato Garibaldi pumps that you could imagine her walking a rope bridge in them. Most sane women give off at least a vague aura of self-containment. They're civilized until they're fucked with. They usually don't show their claws. But when I looked at Estravan, those diagrams of the human body mapped off the amount of brain devoted to them flashed through my mind. The ones with the human body, that's 90% eyes and thumbs. Well, Estravan was 90% claws and cunt. And she was entrancing. Despite myself, I found myself momentarily smitten. That moment was all it took. Not only did I falter, but I lost track of Bamboo Grove. Hoot hung back and was now gone, probably somewhere near, ready to swoop in if needed. Councillor Rasmussen, I said. This is, I said, dropping a half-beat into the introduction. My game was off. She jumped ahead of me, running an AMOG gambit on me. Monica Dietz, she said, extending her hand for a firm shake. First to Rasmussen, sisters first, and then to Echuo and Gilberto. As she shook his hand, she turned her wrist slightly so that her hand ended up on top of his cupped palm. In some dark corner of his mind, she'd begun writing a narrative, herself as the lovely maiden, her dainty knuckles waiting for his princely kiss. But before it became conscious, she withdrew her hand and shook mine. Plain old handshake. Andy, she said, of course, using the diminutive. Her tone was more dismissive than familiar. She was casting me as the wannabe knight, as if I was the unfavored competition, someone she'd dumped once long ago. 
Gilberto's eyes were on me. She held on, forcing the handshake at last, just a smidgen too long. Fuck, I thought loudly as I felt the wave of insecurity tremble through me. She's really good. People love to hear their own names, but hate to hear their own name while wearing another persona, especially abbreviated in the way that reminds them of negative experiences. Let's leave it at that. Nika, I said. That's what she'd always been called among the activists, and I hoped it might be a good returning shot. But it didn't work on her. Didn't phase her at all. She was expecting it. How have you been since... I paused, furrowing my brow ever so slightly, as if with sympathy. And in my contacts, I scanned the whole set's IPBRs. Nothing unusual, beyond Estrovan's seething subliminal hostility. Since last time. Oh, excellent, better than you can imagine. She beamed at me, overcompensating slightly. Nobody else was picking up this confrontational undercurrent. The audience was blind and deaf as we played out our drama. Wonderful. Say, I've heard you're also pushing hard on the reef deal. Work with me, I suggested with my eyes. Dr. Gilberto here's the person to talk to, I said. If you want to hear the scoop on China and Argentina. And to him, my smile said, don't thank me, bro. Isolate your target. It's not like she had any reason to focus on Rasmussen or to not talk to Gilberto. Gilberto caught it and smiled widely at her. He was married, supposedly faithfully, but who'd mind spending five minutes hashing out second-hand news with a woman who looked even half as hot as Estrovan? Nobody. That's who. When I turned back, Bamboo Grove was shaking Rasmussen's hand. Crestfallen, I took it in with a brief glance and then looked back at Estrovan and Gilberto. I felt eyes on me. A chuo. He grinned, and I realized suddenly that he knew. You ran into that sometimes, no matter how smooth your game was. Women who sensed you were a PUA, guys who were just more sensitive to social interactions than most men, or who had EPUA buddies and knew enough to catch on. He pointedly held my gaze before glancing over at the other two pairs. I think we're alone now, he sang softly not breaking his smile for an instant. He had, I noticed just then, absolutely perfect teeth. Looks like, I said, and furrowed my brow as he put his arm around my shoulder. It's cool. Let them play their move. You've already broed Hector, and Rasmussen's already on board. She is, I said. Ichuo nodded, sliding one arm around my back. Yep, and don't you dare take credit in your Sarge report, organic. He scolded me, eyes half-serious above that perfect-toothed smile. Now, who's she? He nodded at Estrogen. In real life, I mean, to you. Uh, An ex, kind of, I shrugged. She and I. No, man. By real life, I mean online. What's her ecofem name? He said it like it was an easy mistake and patted my shoulder. He radiated magnanimity the way a cup of hot chocolate radiates comfort on a winter night. Too much. Why the fuck was he growing me? Wait, what's your handle, I asked. The grin went sly, a bit sympathetic, 
with just a touch of AMOG, and he said, I'm in a slightly different network. Like rogue software, Game 2.0 had spread around the world, creating subcultures we'd never imagined. What had we created without even knowing it? An invite message popped up in my left contact, some kind of social network site I'd never heard of before. Trust me, he said. You want in. I accepted it, and nothing happened. You need one more invite from an insider. Once you accept both, we'll be in touch, and the world will never be the same, he said and excused himself, leaving me standing there like I'd just met some kind of Greek god. Toyas Machina, I thought, as he walked straight up to Greenfire, as if he knew her. Then he kissed her on the cheek and started talking to her, and I realized from her reaction that he did know her. Greenfire was one of them, too? Whoever they were, she must have been watching us. Watching us for them? The reefs were going to be fine if Echua wasn't fucking with me. Estrevan was laughing, her hand on Gilberto's arm. Bamboo Grove was nodding earnestly as Rasmussen gestured around, as if complaining about the deafening music. I stepped up to the bar and ordered a glass of 30-year-old Langevulin, the same thing I always drank to celebrate a successful Hague Sarge. I ordered it in perfect Dutch, even though the bartender spoke fine English. That was how many times I'd done it. With my first sip, a sense of immense calm washed over me. Us Game 2.0ers had to feel like we were the only ones who were working the system for good. Bravado has kept us going, believing that only we stood between the biosphere and cash-crazed ruin. We, the brave, intrepid few who gave a shit about the environment, who saved the world by hacking the human mind. That was a fairy tale, a lie we'd created to give ourselves the balls to try to do something. And here was a whole nother network we'd never heard of, using our hacks and techniques, fighting for the same thing. I was hit again by something I'd felt that first night home, after my first boot camp, that sense of relief. I am not the only one. We are not the only ones. Then I felt a hand on my shoulder, a voice whispered into my ear. Hello, Andrew. Monica, I said, not turning. My learned instinct was to let her come to me. After running that AMOG on me, I wasn't going to offer myself up for some emotional clawing. Anyway, I was above this. The Sarge had been run long before I'd shown up, and her attack on me had achieved nothing. I was above scrapping with ecofems now. I'd been invited into a new, higher echelon. She slid in next to me and smiled, a faint patina of glitter makeup twinkling on her cheeks. She was stunning. Those stray dark locks on her forehead, her no-way-they're-real lashes, the way one eye closed just a smidgen more than the other when she smiled, the tiny wrinkles on her lower eyelids. Careful organic, I reminded myself. We never did say goodbye properly. She set one hand on my shoulder, and taking my drink away with the other, she sipped it. She set it back down on the bar so that her arms ended up almost around my neck. Ever wonder why? she asked, eyes twinkling. Not really, I said, playing it cool. I'm beyond this now, chicky, I told myself. 
I probably never have to worry about you ecofems again. Some girls try to change guys, she said in a low, hard voice. Some girls pine over the guys who break their hearts. She ran her nails along the back of my neck. And some of them just wait for the guy to grow the hell up. Her smile was wry. My game was gone now. I stood there perplexed, her arms basically around me, and watched her watch me. I couldn't figure out exactly what kind of move this was. Some kind of elaborate, deep-structure AMOG? Maybe a highly morphed variant of XNLP? I didn't know what she was doing, but one thing was for sure. She was hacking my mind. Hardcore. I narrowed my gaze briefly and launched a few apps, which immediately burst active. The data slammed into my view in a cascading sequence of facklets. She was wearing contacts, of course. There was an IPBR output running on one lens, displaying my status. Besides the scotch, there was a biochemical trace on her breath that was a well-known common marker of having taken Peacock, Creative Commons. Her heartbeat and respiration were slightly elevated, which in most women signals arousal. Or rage. Don't those guys usually outgrow them by then? I was as nonchalant as I could be against a slowly rising tide of vestigial AFEC paranoia. Think you've outgrown me? She said, one nail scratching my hairline. It felt good, especially with her eyes on mine, her voice echoing in my mind. I thought of her on my couch and remembered she'd done this then, too. Scratched one nail along my hairline. Fuck. She'd seduced me that night? We'll see, she said. I haven't given up on you yet, she said with a sharp little grin, and smoothed the back of my neck with one soft hand. Then she leaned into me and touched my chin, and I felt my eyes close reflexively. Then, nothing. When I opened my eyes, she was smiling at me, and Bagheera and Bamboo Grove were there too, by her side, eyeing me with amused smiles. There's hope for you yet, kiddo, Estraven said. See you around, if you've manned up enough. Then she threw me a look of pure seduction. On my left contact, a window popped up. It was the second invite, the one that followed up at Chuo's. And it was signed, Love, Estraven. And then she was gone. I minimized the invite window. I was surrounded by suits, drinking and dancing. Once again alone. My wingmen were gone. My overpriced drink, a scotch older than I was, wasn't doing anything for me. And Estraven, which was what I had to call her since I couldn't call this glorious woman Monica, still was right there in my head. Was this some sort of counter game? Was I being mind-fucked? Maybe it was some kind of cognitive virus or something. But that feeling that Estravan gave off, that intense attraction, it felt real. Were she and I really on the same side? Her red light went off in the upper left corner of my left contact. It was a call from Biosphere, probably a status update on Hunter. A patch of window opened up automatically, though the call wouldn't be opened till I approved it. Biosphere was looking sidelong, 
his expression bored, his peacocky shades perched on the top of his authority-evoking brush cut. And as good a wingman as he was, I wondered if he could have done any better than I had if Estravan had scratched the back of his neck. I thought then, and I know now, though that's another story, that he would have crumbled. She had game. Monster game. She was my equal, and that pulled some tiny, deep trigger somewhere in my mind. I felt something. I didn't know what at first, because for me, that feeling was something I'd had to train myself to feel. I'd played so much fake it till you make it that I barely recognized the real thing. It was faith. Faith in myself. Faith in her. Faith that in this random world, in this senseless universe, despite my blunders and mistakes and successes, and despite all the chaos and cynicism that had soaked into everything and everyone, I'd found my way right where I needed to be. On the doorstep to the underworld where people really were saving the world from itself. And what I did next is why this will be my last posting on this board, guys. Because, yeah, it's been great, but I have better things to do. Yeah, I maximized the second invite message, took a deep breath, and accepted This posting narration has been visually animated using Adeptus Virtual Narrator software, licensed to the game 2.0 EPUA web board. For upgrades on your home narrator display system, just register Stop. with- Dude, I can't believe it. Organic's out? Man, it's the- the end of an era. Economy Comfort Coach Class Tickets for Brisbane, Australia found. Cost $4,815 including all taxes and fees. Shall I reserve them? Hmm, I don't know. What if I've been wasting my life? I mean, sure, I did talk the local anarchist cooperative into supporting the local candidate for the Green Party, but for what? I mean, if I've left a trail of broken hearts and distrust along the way, is it really doing the world any good? What good are coral reefs if we've all forgotten how to love one another? Maybe I'm crazy, but I... Maybe I need to... To think about things. Maybe I need to... Google Jet is offering you a 15% discount if you buy in the next 10 minutes. If you pay the full price, you'll get an extra 6 inches of legroom. Book it, Hal. Book it. Pop is upgrading his game. And, uh... Thanks for the music. It was a nice touch. You're welcome, Jason. There you go. Don't forget copyright is Mr. Gord Seller. Next we've got a little promo by 90 Nocturne Boulevard. Step right up. The most amazing tales appear before your very eyes. Gathered from the four corners of Earth and brought here to you at 19 Nocturne Boulevard. See the famous man-eating book of Sumatra. (laughs) Or a phantom direct from merry old England. Or aliens from beyond the stars. 
even such as these cannot withstand our platinum death ray. Yes, our platinum death ray. All these and more spread out before you. Now we ask is a moment of your time. Spin the wheel and make a chance. Try your luck. www.19nocturneboulevard.net I'll put a link on to 19 Nocturne Boulevard. Do pop over there and say hello. So, just to end the show, Larry was lying in bed, you know. He's got all this technology so he can kind of hook out and get out. You know what I mean? He's stuck in the bed, but he can certainly on the internet get around and about. And he dropped us this little note like an afterward. You know, and I thought this would be great just to play on the show as well. So, Larry, over to you, sir. This is Larry Santoro talking from the hospital. Uh, and having just discovered that the microphone on the earbuds of an iPhone make a reasonably decent recording microphone for my computer, which I have with me, luckily. So I thought I'd just update you a little bit on the hospital stay. Interesting experience. I've not been in a hospital since I was in the Air Force back in England in the late 1960s. So this is my first time actually as a patient. Yes. Hang on just a second. Uh, Okay. This is about 10 minutes later. I was just talking to Dr. Helen Zenos, who's the latest of a long stream of doctors that have come up to me. And I, uh, she was discussing my, I, I, I see, I've just been moved to my third bed since I've been here. Uh, not counting the emergency room. I went up to a kind of intensive care unit first, uh, cardiac intensive care unit. Then I was moved to regular gen pop, as they would say in prison terminology. And now I am back into a kind of monitored unit uh, because my uh, primary physician, Dr. Dela Cruz, wanted me to be monitored, not that there was anything more wrong. He just felt that they should be monitoring me because, as he told me this morning, just about an hour and a half ago, that I was as close to dying as he's seen anybody in six months who didn't die, presumably, uh, which was sobering. I mean, I knew it was serious, but I hadn't realized quite how serious. Anyway, what I was about to say is that this institution, it's a big hospital, it's Illinois Masonic, and I have an eighth-floor room that has a view now, again, of Wrigley Field, and I can actually see a corner of my own building, my own apartment, my own house from here, so I could kind of almost wave to my wife, to Celia and the cats. But what I was saying was, uh, this hospital, like all hospitals, I guess, is a 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week operation in which you have doctors, nurses, uh, assistants, uh, janitors, thousands of people that are here 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And every moment, they are at work. And so the consequence of that is that at 3 in the morning, somebody comes in to take your x-ray, whether you're awake or asleep, or at... One in the morning, somebody comes in to draw blood. Luckily, they put a sort of permanent tap on my arm so they don't have to actually stick me anymore. They can just poke a hole into this uh, little device and suck blood out, and then they have to clean it because my blood is now incredibly thin. Uh, I am taking, uh, well, I will be taking uh, 
a substance called cumin. I, I think is that is that it? Cumin, cumin, uh, which is rat poison. Alarmingly, uh, but in the dose that I'm taking, of course, all it does is thin my blood. In the dose that a rat gets it with its tiny body and uh, uh, much more sensitive system than mine, apparently, uh, it causes them to hemorrhage to death. Uh, I'm looking now at this little shunt or this little uh, thing in my arm that they from which they draw, and it is filled with blood and oozing, and it's got a bruise on it. And the other side. <clears throat> which I'm getting an infusion of a drug called heparin, which thins the blood and helps to prevent uh, clots from forming. Uh, uh, that also is kind of oozing out from underneath the uh, surgical tape. <clears throat> and I haven't showered since Wednesday morning, and I, I, I like to stay clean. I, I, I shower at least once a day, if not more. So this this my hair is a greasy hank that hangs down in my face, and I smell bad, and I don't look particularly charming. Uh, but that's it. So I just thought I'd update things, and uh, I'm going to edit this. Maybe I won't even edit it. I'll send it off to Tony if he wants to add it to the little Skype interview that we did the other day. Uh, so much the better. But I want to thank everybody. That's the reason I started this. I wanted to thank everybody online. Uh, on the Starship and on Facebook and wherever else, my email that that has uh, commented on me is so strange. Being at World Horror and seeing or, or World Fantasy recently and seeing Gene and seeing other people that I know have gone through major health issues during the past year uh, and feeling, wow, we're all up here now in years and we're all getting older and gosh. Then to come home and have this happen. Ooh. See, ah, now what you just heard, I keep hearing it three. It's now ten twenty-one in Saturday morning, uh, but that sort of thing happens twenty-four hours a day. I can be just dozing off after having watched a movie on my computer, and just finally slipping into something blessed like sleep, and suddenly the machine next door will start beeping loudly or we'll get calls or whatever. Anyway, uh, what I was saying, I believe, was that I wanted to thank everybody for uh, taking the time to, to wish me well and, uh, and all that. Uh, <clears throat> one nice thing uh, that has happened since I've been here, not because of it or even uh, peripheral to it, uh, I had a long phone conversation with the publisher, or the publisher-to-be of the collection Drink for the Thirst to Come, and it looks like it will be out in June of 2011. <clears throat> I would have it, I'd like to have it by April, May of 2011, because then it could be available for uh, the World Horror Convention in uh, Austin, which I'm planning to go to. Uh, but that's not to be, so it's it's no major deal. Uh, so look forward to seeing Drink for the Thirst to Come in 2011, in June. And thanks again for all your wishes and uh, for listening and for uh, just for being part of this little family. So thanks, everybody. Thank you, Tony. And I'll talk to you later. We hope.
you go. You better get yourself sorted out. Come on. Exercise and diet. <laughs> the two things that make men shudder. <laughs> so, and the hoover. God, can we bloody hell. The list of things that I've got to do today. So that is Starship's Hoover's Oral Delight 162. Hope you enjoyed it. Do you know what I mean? A fantastic line up there. Thank you so much to everyone who's kind of stuck in and, you know, helped out with this show. And don't forget, we have the now the enhanced version as well. So if you're keen on the enhanced version, Shig the Unmentionable, Shig, thank you, will put that up. As soon as he gets it down the feed, he'll put it up and sort it out for you as well. So there you go. Don't forget, support Starship Sova. You know, we've got some books out there now. Please do that. That would be fantastic. I think still we're going to get, we've got... Probably one left, I think. Maybe two of them books. And I think I mentioned that last week as well. So I don't think them big books have sold. But what we're going to do, I think we're going to end them anyways. I'm going to put them on eBay and maybe donate one to a certain person as well. Listen out for more news on that. But there is still the paperbacks out there. And if you want to support Starship Sova and you, you believe what we're doing, there you go. There will be links on from the website. Until next week, just like I say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a badly recent procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.